Hello, I'm Eagle, Eagle Gardens, Eagle Gardens 1 on Instagram, and this is Fucking Talking Shit with Eagle, episode 296. I have one amazing guest for you tonight, Tim Blake. Wow. Hi, tell us how you're doing and where we can find you tonight. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm out here in uh, the Emerald Triangle in uh, northern Mendocino County up in Laytonville. At, uh, across from my uh, my campground, Area 101. Just hanging out tonight. Well, I want to start this by saying, you know, thank you for all you've done throughout your cannabis journey and putting the cup, uh, Emerald Cup together and keeping it going all these years. It's just one amazing notch in your belt, but uh, so, so much more. Uh, thank you on all fronts for helping us keep this cannabis thing going and it's we owe a lot to folks like yourself uh for making this dream come true that's for sure it's people like yourself that's helped push this thing to where it is now and i feel blessed to be able to just sit in this room and talk to you uh you know thank you thank you very much first and foremost thank you you know i consider myself like the rest of the old scores like we're the linemen on a football team. We came in and just blew the holes out. So guys like you, all the younger people could come through and just have a free run, you know, the running backs and whatnot. And uh, not only myself, but all the, all the people that really did the work over the last 40 years deserve a lot of credit because uh, it was a tough industry for a long time, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s through the 2000s. And uh, a lot of people were risking a lot of time and a lot of stress, PTSD and you know, a lot of them weren't made for social media. They're not brand people. They're, you know, they're mountain people. They're, you know, back in the woods and uh, they're going to have a tough time in this new legal market. So uh, my hat's off to all of them, you know, all those people that spent all that time and energy and those generations of work they did. It's really amazing. I've seen some of the stuff that you guys produced in the Emerald Triangle there. I can't imagine to be a part of the legendary cannabis uh, growing triangle there. I mean, it, just to be a part of that is legendary all in itself, but you left a huge mark in the triangle. So, you know, what was it like, you know, coming up through that time and growing way, 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 way back when, before it was even thought about it, it would have had to been just scary, but uh, amazing times for sure. Well, I started before anybody was growing. I started out in the early 70s uh, back in Santa Cruz is really where I was back in the Santa Cruz County on the beach. And uh, my family moved from San Jose and uh, we moved into a, an old bar in downtown Capitola near Santa Cruz. And all of a sudden the barn wood goes up on the walls and all the art galleries are there and all the hippies are coming over, getting my parents stoned. I'm smoking their pot at 14, 15. And then I started dealing for all those people. And then you know, getting two pound blocks of Mexican and whatnot back in the uh, early 70s and taking that to SoCal High School every Friday and selling 32 lids. They called them lids back then. Boy, you know, two, two finger, three finger lids. And so that nobody even grew back then. That was before anybody grew because there was so much Thai, there was so much Mexican, there was so much hash, you know, Acapulco gold, Colombian, you know, stuff coming in. Nobody even thought to really grow at that point. You know, a few people putting seeds in the ground, sure, at that point. But 
there was so much as a commercial basis, you didn't need to. It really wasn't until we came around the corner in the late 70s, people started really growing. And then into the 80s, it really took off. But uh, yeah, to watch that, I tell people, just take a take a decade and tell me what you want to know about it. 70s, 80s, 90s, and I'll tell you how it all evolved. But I started growing because uh, a friend of mine came to me. Uh, I had 5,000 pounds in my garage of Thai. And he was from one of the other families. Uh, there were all these families that were... Uh, working these loads that were coming in and there were hundred thousand pound loads getting dropped off in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Santa Barbara, and then the ships that take off and, and they bring it on shore and they break that down into 25,000 pound lots. And then people get 5,000 people get one. I was like the youngest guy to be getting a thousand pounds at a time. I was like 20 years old, 21 years old. I was, I was known as the kid. Now I'm the old guy, but back then I was the kid. And, uh, Somebody came to me, a friend of mine, Elliot, and he showed me in the mid eighties. I mean, we were, I was getting a hundred thousand, I was getting a thousand pounds and making two bucks a pound and making $200,000 a load back in the late eighties, or I mean, the late seventies, early eighties. I mean, it was a pretty sweet business, no weapons, nobody was robbing anybody. It was a pretty, really, it was a wonderful business. And he came to me and he said, um, you see those lights in Safeway? We're going to be growing out of those lights in another two years. And I said, we're going to be growing pot under the lights from Safeway. Are you out of your mind? I said, why would you be doing that? And he said, because they're going to bust all the loads coming in over the next two years. The generals have said it. And they're going to bust all the tie, all the hash, all the Mexican. And we're going to be forced to grow indoors. And uh, he also said that people were getting, at that time, cocaine was $100 a gram. And he said, cocaine is going to become worth 10 bucks a gram. And they're going to flood the streets with it. And I said he was out of his mind. He wanted a third of my crop. You had to give a third of your indoor crop up for two years, six crops, and you couldn't take one clone to get the cut. It became known as the grease, the chronic, and the magic. It really originated from Big Sur with those guys. And it was the first super pot. Uh, but two years later, I had to go back and beg for that clone because they busted every load. And uh, the whole business was shattered. And at the same time, they created the private prison system and they created the federal minimum mandatory. So all of a sudden you were getting, instead of six months to a year in jail, you were looking at 10 to 20 years. So between night, like 1985 and 1988, they just blew the whole business up. It just got shredded. And so that's really why people started growing indoors. Otherwise indoors would have never been grown. I mean, I was coming up to the Mendocino and getting a few pounds of outdoor because we love smoking it, but it was like about 1% of the business. It really was a very small part of the business. And, uh, Within a couple of years there, we all moved up to Mendocino County and really started growing all the indoor. And it wasn't outdoor because you couldn't grow outdoor at the time. It was indoor crops. We all started doing, running Jennies and doing, you know, 40, 60, 80 lights. I, the most I ever ran was about 140 lights, uh, you know, two Jennies and stuff. But uh, it was an indoor business that really came out of that. It's funny, the Emerald Cups, the sun growing competition, it's the first year we're going to let the indoor in. But I grew up growing indoor. You know, I did a couple outdoor crops, but most of it was all big indoor generator run grows. And uh, so that's kind of how that happened. And um, so it was kind of interesting evolution of the business. So what were you, what was the setup look like back then? I mean, were you in dirt back then? I mean, I, uh, what did well, yeah, the setup was, look like? There was no, there was no cocoa. There was just, it was, you know, dinosaur stuff. We were getting bags of soil, uh, bringing in, you know, bags all bottled fertilizers, you know, pretty primitive stuff, you know, it was way back in the eighties and we were just growing under the, uh, the old lights. In fact, back then they weren't even merged. It was separated. We were just doing sodiums 
they didn't have the phosphorus at the time. And then they got the blends and stuff. And they were the lights that were hanging with the, uh, the mechanical part, the power part on top. So they were hanging down. You know, they were, you know, they were, they were prehistoric stuff. They were the old day. I wish we'd have kept some of those because you don't see that much anymore of that stuff. But uh, we just went in there and did it. We didn't know what we were doing. And uh, we just jumped into it and uh, started running generators. I had no idea how to run generators. And you know, the next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm running two generators and trying to figure out how to keep those things running and the fuel messy jobs. I'll tell you what, you run generators and power with fuel. You're running a lot, a lot of fuel up there. I mean, all of us were, were dealing with environmental issues and stuff. It wasn't a clean thing. How can you move that much, that much fuel around and stuff, but we did the best we could. And uh, we did pretty darn good until they started wiping all the indoor out too. And it's completely crazy. I can't, it's hard to believe then, well, Triangle would have started more indoors. I mean, uh, it is, well, I've never been there was, myself, it, but. Well, it was outdoor. I mean, people weren't growing, they were growing outdoor because nobody even thought to grow indoor. You know, through the late, stiff, late 70s and into the early 80s, it was a small outdoor operation, but it wasn't a huge market because there was so much time Mexican that, there wasn't a huge business going on. It was when they busted all those loads of Thai and Mexican and hash in the mid eighties that it really blew up. And that's when the indoor took over the Emerald Triangle uh, because camp came in. I mean, you had narcotics people flying and stuff, but they weren't very organized. Uh, once the big uh, indoor people came in and the big operations came in, then they started flying really heavy and it became a much more dangerous situation. People started looking at real jail time. Yeah. It was a whole different world. So did, uh, how long did it take to really get things uh, like in the good groove over there like like that? I mean, coming from outdoor to indoor had to be, you know, an incredible <laughs> shock. I mean, even though, you know, you know this, the plant how to grow it, but it seems like, especially under a foreign light like that, I mean, as we get new lights these days, LEDs, it's still a learning curve. It seems like, was there a few crops that were just for, oh, this might not even be a thing <laughs> before you guys kind of got the, the full swing of a good uh, Oh, yeah, we learned how to screw up every way you could. So, how long were you guys doing? Uh, you know, uh, with what saved us was that uh, we were getting such top dollar for it that in spite of not really knowing what we were doing to begin with, everybody made really good money selling it because once the time Mexican was out of the way and the prison sentences came in, the prices jumped up. I mean, we were selling Thai and Mexican for, I mean, great Thai weed. I mean, you never got to see Thai. You know, the Thai that was coming in, the two packs was so stunning, uh, but it was going for about uh, 1,300 pound wholesale and about 16. Are you guys still on with me? Yeah. And then, and then uh, when, the, when the prison sentences came in, of course, the, the risk came in, the prices jumped, and all of a sudden you saw stuff going for three, 4,000 a pound really quickly. It's uh, quite, a, quite a change there. I mean, so how long was it before that you guys kind of got your foot? It couldn't have took that long because weed's easy to sell. <laughs> Good weed's easy to sell, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, so it was like basically at that oh, no, moment no. where was that when uh, the brick weed started coming flooding in? 
Well, no, the, the brickweed came flooding in way in the, in the 70s. I mean, you're talking, uh, the brickweed came in and that was what we were selling. And then people wanted a better product, so they started bringing the tie in. Now, tie started out as, as uh, stickweed. I mean, tie was on sticks and it really wasn't very good. You couldn't sell it because it was on these sticks and it was like everything was wrapped on there. And very quickly they realized how to make stickless tie, which was to not put it on sticks, lay it out nice and flat without pressing it too hard. And we called them two packs. They'd come in between 900 and 1200 grams, lightly layered in there. And you'd get these beautiful, you know, you'd get some golden sticks, you'd get some like red sticks. Uh, they were stunning. And so that really turned into an upgrade market. And then uh, they started bringing in the Mexican the same way. They stopped bringing in bricks and they started lightly setting that in. And you'd see some Mexican sensomia that was stunning uh, that would come in and we'd be picking up that from the borders. But, you know, that was after the, uh, after they busted all the tie, we started going to the borders to get the, uh, the Mexican blocks and whatnot. But that was dangerous. You're going down to Bisbee and Southern Arizona and stuff and you're driving back. And I mean, they can pick you off real easy. I almost got busted a couple of times and that was not a, uh, that was a stressful life trying to run loads from the Arizona border. Not a lot of fun. So is it, you're kind of thought we've all heard lately or been under the impression from folks like yourself that, uh, you know, indoor cultivation kind of killed some of the great strains there. Is that your opinion too, that, uh, indoor cultivation because of smells, the, you know, loud, loud turps kind of called like strains like skunk and some of the more loud strains that were legendary back back in the beginning? No, I, don't, I think what happened was that, um, well, I mean, for a long time, you could sell any good good strain. Uh, what happened was about the turn of the, the, you know, under the 2000s, you really saw the cushions come in. I mean, up north, it was the purple, and down south, it was the OG and the cushions. And you really had, I mean, in, in the uh, inner cities and the hood and stuff, everybody wanted the perps. Um, and down south, everybody wanted the OG and the cushions. And so it got to the point where if you didn't have an OG, after a while, if you didn't have an OG or a cush, you couldn't really sell your bud. So a lot of the strains went by the wayside because the skunks and a lot of those other strains just really weren't strong enough. They weren't, they weren't desirable enough to keep up with the OGs. And so we lost a lot of really rare genetics because people got to the point where it's like, why well, keep my, you know, my own strain or this strain or that strain because it doesn't sell well enough. So it really killed it off. But I mean, it was first the purpose. I remember a guy came up and he had, uh, when I was growing indoor, a guy came and gave me 20 African seeds by mistake. And uh, he called me back and said, I didn't mean to give you those, uh, I, I, but I'd already started them. And it was the, it was the really a funky plant. It had no weight on it. It didn't get you very high, but it was a pure purple African strain. And it was the most unique thing you've ever seen. You didn't need to force it into purple. It grew purple. And I didn't really think much of it. To me, it was like, what am I going to do with this? Because it's like, nobody's going to buy this. But we seeded a crop in my indoor by mistake of that. And I gave out a bunch of those pounds with those seeds to some people. And then that became the basis for a lot of the purple in these mountains. They, they took that and they bred that. Uh, my friend took the blue dragon and, and merged that into making the purple dragon. Uh, you saw that with the Urkels. You saw a lot of the strains up here come from that original African that the Chicago family brought in. And uh, 
that became the purple strains that everybody loves so much in the Bay Area. And then down south, they brought the OGs in. Uh, but then what happened was after a number of years, people finally realized that that purple tasted great, but none of those strains were as strong as the OG or the chem dogs or uh, the Hindus and whatnot. So that really gave way to those. And But then what started happening was you saw them breeding the purples into the cushions. The first cup winner in 2004 was a purple cush. And it was stunning. I mean, they mixed, they mixed a purple into that cush and uh, we started getting all these hybrids. And so that really uh, it kind of evolved really quickly too. But, you know, it's interesting now because now everybody has to have a unique flavor. And so now you see so many unique cultivar strains coming out. It's unbelievable. I can't even keep up with all the stuff coming out of the gelatos and the, the cookies and Skittles and all that stuff. Uh, and everybody wants those unique terpene profiles. But back then, people were like kind of Neanderthal. You either bring an OG Kush that knocks you on your ass or take it home. You know, and so in the business, people were like, man, I got to grow OG because that's all anybody wants. Now, on, now out here, people are having a hard time selling OG because there's so much of it and it's become so generic. And nobody would ever thought that it's generic. People up here have a hard time selling it for, for high digit anymore. This is where I never do this either, Mr. Blake. I never do this, but I'm going to look right in the camera and talk to the people watching. Do you hear that? Hype killed your favorites, basically. <laughs> because I'm always I'm always on the rampage about, you know, as far as breeding goes, it's always these, we have a lot of, you know, wannabe breeders, I guess I'll call it, or in, better yet, inspiring breeders. Let's put it that way. It sounds a little better. Inspiring yeah. breeders. And it's always hype times hype times hype. And I, I'm like, you guys are going to blend everything together. You're losing good genetics. Basically, I'm you know, asking everybody to just stop. Stop the breeding right now. Let's figure out what we've got and kind of, you know, get to a phase where we know what we've got. We can stabilize some stuff and then we'll move forward with some you know, knowledge of what we're doing and not hype times hype times hype. It's just, it's getting crazy. You know, it, it's sad. You know, I, I almost go out of my way to try to grow anything. If it's got the hype name in it, I'm like, oh, no, I want something that, you know, isn't around. And it's sad to say that we, we've lost the greats to hype. It's sad to hear that. I'd almost rather hear the, the, the question, Mr. Blake, that indoor killed it. Going in, the smells killed themselves. But to hear that hype, that hype actually kind of killed it is it's sad. It, it just strengthens my argument to kind of appreciate the hype, but don't necessarily make it your backbone for your breeding. Well, you know, the thing about this is that there was an era there where things came in, you know, the chem dog in the early 90s, and then, you know, the Hindu came in, the OG, and they were they were so rare, and they were so so strong and so beautiful. That's all I wanted to smoke, too. I mean, that's all I smoked for a number of years, man, give me some strong OG myself. Uh, so that was okay. Um, people got to remember that, you know, if you had over, uh, you know, 100 seeds, you go to prison. I mean, seeds were a big deal. Same with concentrates that's why we didn't let the concentrates in for the first cup we wouldn't even do a concentrate cup or a contest and we wouldn't let any seeds in. i had a friend of mine ringo lawrence who's 
created all the original CBD strains and he wanted to sell seeds. And I was like, look, I'm going to get busted. It's bad enough for pot. But you coming in with seeds and genetics, they knew that that's how people are going to breed and, and make new strains and move on. So they really went after the genetic people. They went after the concentrate people. Uh, back then, it wasn't really concentrates. It was straight hash. But uh, you had to be really careful with that because uh, you go to prison for that very easily. It was easier just to have clones and just run OG. You know, so that's what people did. But you know, it's, it's changing. There's so much of that coming in now. It's really hard to even keep up. There's just so much stuff that's come in, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's beautiful to see actually. And everybody's breeding uh, and everybody's getting much. their own strains and it's uh, their own cultivars. Well, that brings me to a good question. Uh, Amadeus here in chat was wanting to know great questions, by the way, Amadeus, he's wanting to know, uh, who were some of the MO triangle? pioneers uh to begin with and he wants to know who are some of the notable breeders from the uh, emerald triangle today well notable breeders you've got you know uh me and gene you got jackson who's an incredible guy he's doing some stuff his partner leo from aficionado did some great stuff uh carl witt and eden farms uh carl's bought in quite a few things um you got uh, Mark Greenshock. Uh, he's he's amazing too. You know, it's it went from where there weren't that many uh, really great breed, uh, breeders and genetic people to where now there's dozens. You got the Humboldt, you know, uh, Humboldt Seed Collective up there. You got all those guys. Ringo Lawrence was an early on guy. You know, uh, as far as the old time guys, you know, people didn't put their name out there back then. I mean, you really didn't ever. You didn't drive big trucks. You didn't you didn't brag. You didn't talk about your strains or go out and do things because you went to prison for 10 to 20 years. <laughs> so nobody was out there talking about a bunch of stuff. And they're really, uh, I was an early on guy because nobody would talk about it. And I realized that we had to make this legal uh, because people had to stop going to prison and we had to work it. So I was an early on guy that really came out. But for the first cups and for the first number of years, people wouldn't even really put their face out there. In fact, I got death threats uh, a couple different times uh, after the Emerald Cup and after we started sponsoring the sheriff's debates at my place. We sponsored the first sheriff's and DA debates to talk with law enforcement. I got death threats from the guys up on Spyrock saying that I was really getting in the way of all of them in the business and I was going to ruin it all. So uh, it wasn't like uh, anybody wanted to talk about that. Um, There's some legendary people, but most of them are gone, uh, you know, and uh, they're just not around. I'd say one of the people I really love is Ringo Lawrence, uh, old school guy that's not with us. And like I said, he created uh, a lot of the original CBD strains, uh, Sour Tsunami and Ringo's Gift. And um, Charlotte's Web really came from him. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I'm 64 and there's not that many of us left, really. You know, it was a, it was a hard life. Uh, you look at Ringo, you look at, I mean, the stress, the PTSD from dealing with the cops the strain of it all, going to prison, uh, the stress. Uh, it was it was really tough on a lot of people. You know, it was really tough. Well, I can only imagine California has played fucking cat and mouse with you guys for years. For years. You give you guys the, like, the okay and then turn around and rage you guys. The sheriff's department's over there trying to work with you just to turn around and give information to the feds and have everybody raided 
it's you know it's you guys haven't had an easy run over there for sure uh, but we do. We owe a lot of things well, to what good. happened over there at the Admiral Triangle, for sure. Well, it was different. What happened was that uh, Camp and Comet, which were basically the state law enforcement, were funded by the feds and basically run by the feds. So they were local units, but they basically had feds embedded into them, and they were given carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. And so I won't go back and name names, but there were some legendary people that really beat the crap out of us for, you know, 10, 20 years. And they could take whatever they wanted. Uh, they had their own fiefdoms. They'd steal your pot. They'd take all your personal stuff. They were taking all your cash. Uh, and, you know, they could... Uh, one guy got away with, with shooting three different people. Uh, yeah, there was pretty much like something out of the South or something. You'd think some old school, old boy stuff. But uh, Humboldt didn't get that nearly as much. That was more Mendocino. Uh, Mendocino got the worst of it because camp was based out of here. And so it was very, very challenging. That's why we finally just, uh, Pebbles Trippett came to me and said, would I sponsor the first sheriff's debate at my place, Area 101, where the Emerald Cup was being held? And it was the first time law enforcement, all the sheriff candidates came together with all the growers and talked about how we could live together. And uh, that's when I got the death threats. But to me, it was like, look, I've had too many friends go to prison for 10, 20 years. Uh, PTSD, uh, there was no access for patients or consumers, and this has got to stop. And so we sponsored those first sheriff debates up in my place, uh, with, and Tom Allman, we got Tom Allman elected, who was the sheriff here for over 12 years. And that's what led to all the legalization. That's what led to the first uh, program where you could grow outdoors with a permit. You can grow up to 99 plants, the 9.31 program. Because see, up till then, everybody's got the idea that indoor just blows doors on all the outdoor. But that's historically because most of the outdoor was being grown under the trees in the shade. And when you're growing shade bud and you're competing against indoor that's under lights, you know, just blasted lights, you can't compete with that, of course. But once we got the 9.31 program passed where you could grow 100 plants out in full sun, then all of a sudden we could go out there and grow ourselves some beautiful five-pound sun plants sun-grown plants and grow some beautiful buds. And then people start realizing, wow, you can actually, people didn't think you could grow a good bud, bud, uh, good bud outdoors. Can you believe that? People thought, oh no, you can't even grow good bud outdoors. Really, it's all grown indoors. But that's because try growing a tomato in the shade. You know, try growing corn under the trees. You're not gonna grow very good vegetables if you're under the trees. And so that's where we had to be because uh, those planes were good at finding things. I mean, they took out they took out all the outdoor, the indoor. About uh, the early 2000s, for a long time with the indoor, when we started in the late 80s, up to about 15 years in the early 2000s, if you didn't let anybody into your property, they couldn't get a warrant because they couldn't fly and see indoor. They couldn't see it in there. Then all of a sudden, they got military planes with heat-seeking capabilities, and they could find your 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 heat from the lights. And they could use that for a warrant to come in. And when that happened, it was game over. It was like, it was over. Within two years, they wiped the indoor out in Mendocino. Within a few more years, they did it in Humboldt. Because it didn't matter how good you were in the woods, hidden under the trees, those planes had come over with those heat seekers, and they'd just find it. And then you were done. So once they started taking that out in the early 2000s, that's when we finally said, hey, let's go, let's go lobby the sheriff and get this straightened out. And... Uh, I'll be able to grow full sun. 
changed it. It was the end of an era. What an amazing like that uh, crisis was an opportunity. time it would be to be able to step back outdoors like that and grow them trees. Well, yeah, now, now, yeah, I'm here. Still here? Yeah, yeah. He kind of froze up on my end for a second. Yeah, see, now they're, you know, I got some friends that are doing 25 acres over in Lake County. And now it's just, it's just changed so much. Uh, we passed a law here, 64, uh, a couple years back for legalization. And the deal was they promised that nobody could grow more than an acre for five years so that all the small time farmers up here would have a chance to sunset and not get wiped out overnight. And two months into legalization, our governor opened it up so that people could do large scale agriculture. And then our big farming communities down south in Salinas and Monterey, all the way down through Santa Barbara, started growing large amounts. All of a sudden, they're growing OG and taking it to L.A. and selling it for 900 a pound. And we're growing it up here, expecting it 15. And that's why it really, within two years, it's been legalization, but three years, it's uh, probably going to wipe out, you know, 75 to 90 percent of the of the outdoor farmers up here in the triangle. They're going to all be wiped out. That's a sad, uh, sad thing to even think about right there. Uh, to, to the end of the triangle. It's been devastation there, in my town in Laytonville. can't even be a thing. Well, you know what? It's, it's an amazing era to have watched. It's almost like the Wild West that you're going to look back at history books. with like the gold rush. You know, the gold rush was only about five or ten years. You know, these things weren't long eras. And now people are going to look back. I mean, there's a thousand permits uh, up here in uh, Humboldt or more. Uh, there's like 500 in Mendocino, but there were 10,000 small farmers up here, you know, and now they're cornering. What they did was um, they used to have to fly in planes to find your, find your crops. But then they came up with a brilliant idea. They could use Google mapping and the up-to-date mapping and guys could sit in offices and go over every piece of your land and see what you had. And then they would just put a, a fine on your gate between 10 and 30,000 a day and say, okay, you're gonna owe between 300 and 900,000 in one month if you don't get your crops out. So then they didn't need planes, they didn't need SWAT teams, they didn't need all that crap. They could just show that they've got that information and then give you those fines. And I'll tell you what, when you got one of those fines and you went down to the county and saw you had a $400,000 lien on your property, it made you shut down quick. So they're cornering all the illegal people. And then the legal people, it's so tough. It takes so much money to get permits and get your roads and get your, you know, a lot of these houses were built illegally. The roads weren't done right. Your electrical systems. And you got to go back and upgrade that to code and so it costs anywhere from, you know, 150 to $400,000 to upgrade to become a legal garden. And then they're busting all the illegal gardens. And so what's happened is now the illegal business, the underground mis- business has skyrocketed and people are getting good prices for that because it's harder to grow again. It's funny. It's gone back to where if you can get away with an, an underground illegal outside crop or indoor, look at indoor now. Indoor is back up to 3000 a pound here in California because you can't find much of it that's under the table. It's amazing the way it goes up that's and down, what we've dealt with. 
Yeah, it got some scary low there for a while. Scary low. Even, I mean, because we watch, you know, California still is kind of the stage. You know, we all still sit and watch California and what's going on there. Prices, the way things are grown, strains. And, you know, when things got, you know, terribly low in California, I know over here in Michigan, I was like panicking. I'm like, holy cow, if that's... If that's what's to come, I don't know if I want to keep continuing at that point right now, but I'm glad I, I didn't throw in the towel then. But, you know, it has been a ride. It does go up and down. I mean, it happened, uh, in fact, outdoor here, it was like five years ago, outdoor here in Michigan really kind of took a dump on us. The, it, well, it took a big impact on the market. There was so much outdoor that, uh, indoor flower went right down. It was it was going from like two to two to three hundred dollars, you know, caregiver level to like eighty <laughs> at one point, and uh, we didn't think it was going to come back, but it did. Thank thank goodness it kind of came back a little bit. But yeah, it does. It can be quite the ride. Well, it, having that with us too. Yeah, it, it's look, it's going to be uh, tough over the coming years. I mean, speaking for California anyway, uh, now you've got commercial farms coming on. People are growing large crops, acres, and they're bringing it in for 150 to 450 a pound. I mean, cost. And so, how can you compete? How can a small farmer? We can grow 10,000 square feet to one acre up in northern in Mendocino or Humboldt, uh, but how can you compete with large farms that are growing quality flowers? For 150 to 450 a pound, that's really tough to do. Um, the only people that are going to make it up in these mountains, other than the people that, that try to do it illegally, in the in the uh, in the branded markets, they're going to have to grow a really great flower. They're going to have to really really grow an A grade flower to be able to make that because all the commercial bud is going to be taken by those giant farms. So, long term, I think it's going to be a very challenging market uh, for. Uh, small farmers it really is except you know it's like the alcohol industry for the people that grow you know people that do really good craft beer or grow a really good you know uh, a vineyard farm that's doing wine or spirits you're going to be okay but how many of those are there i, I don't think you're going to see it's really the end of an era uh, for a lot of the small farmers over the next 10 years as this commercial operations come on if you look at oklahoma Oklahoma's blowing up so quick. Uh, the Bulgarians, which are, you know, they're kind of the Russian contingent up here in Humboldt. They used to grow massive illegal farms up here. They're all moving to Oklahoma because you can grow it there in large quantities and you're so close to the East Coast. And uh, right now, Oklahoma is the hottest place to be. And who would have ever thought that? And there's going to be so much. There's not much regulation and they're just growing tons there. And so when you look at the amount I mean, look at Oregon. Oregon had a hard time because they grew too much. I mean, there's definitely such a thing. Now, when we can go interstate, we can go all over the world, it'll make it a lot easier for us. But right now, uh, being stuck in our own states, uh, there's limited markets. I mean, you can definitely overgrow the market. You know, you can do that with any crop. And uh, people up here thought, oh, the people down south will never be able to compete with the triangle farmers. Well, they didn't realize that those people hired a bunch of triangle farmers and brought their, their brands and their strains down there. 
And that's who we're competing against now is a lot of people that move from the Emerald Triangle down there and started growing with them. So uh, it's a pretty competitive business. I went into a company called Natura, which is out of Sacramento. They put about $85 million into their site. They've got about five acres of cultivation and it's all automated. They're going to be growing that with about six people, mixed light. Uh, I mean, it's, it's sun, but I mean, they're using some light in there, but, but it's, uh, they're, they're like everybody else. They're going to be growing this for a few hundred pounds of A-grade product and uh, looking at the future with these large farms and where things are going, it's going to become more and more difficult for a small farmer to compete with that. You know, you're going to need to be a brand. You're going to need to have your own brand. But with like the with the Emerald Triangle reputation, do you think you know, especially so if uh, interstate travel trade uh, comes to be a thing, uh, do you think you guys will be able to you know capitalize on say like the craft market to where you know it's they want that they just want that emerald name, you know what I mean? Grown quality, grown from the Emerald Sun and the Emerald Triangle. Do you think that will uh, help save some of the farmers there that want to tough it out and, you know, dig their feet in at that point? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They've done an Appalachians project, uh, kind of like we do with wine, where you have a, you know, Appalachians originally, so you could designate where your product's made from. And they've, they've got that pass now. We thought it'd take five years, but through Jean Coleman, Janine Coleman and a bunch of really wonderful people, Justin Calvino started that project. They've actually pushed that through. So we are going to have an Appalachians uh, system here where you're going to be able to say that you grew it in a certain area of the triangle or in other parts of the state. And it will help a lot. As for California, as we go across, yes, uh, people are not going to care as much about uh, flour from Oregon or Washington as they are from the Emerald Triangle. We will have that Napa Valley like they do with wine. We're going to have that designation. And the Emerald Triangle will do better than, you know, anybody else in the country and anybody else in the world because of that. So we are fortunate to have that. But again, that's a brand. You've got to have a brand to be able to push that out. And you got to have a name for yourself. And, uh, you know, a lot of these people are going to be growing and then selling their flowers to other brands that will be packaging it. Kind of like, you know what, most vineyards don't make a bottle of wine. Most of them sell their grapes to wholesalers that package it for other vineyards. I mean, other, you know, brands. And so, yeah, but overall that will help the Emerald Triangle and it help the farmers up here and we'll be okay. Um, but you're, you're not going to make the money. I mean, now uh, you grow a thousand pound crop and you're making a hundred or 150,000 a year. So if the, the days of like making the big bucks, are going to be over because it's going to be a job. You're going to be a farmer and you're going to be working your butt off and you're going to be, but, but you're not going to have any risk. You're not going to prison. You're not going to have any issues. You can go buy a car. You're not going to have your houses taken away. Uh, but it's going to be hard for people to make a lot of money like they did in the past, unless you're one of those few brands that really rocks and you can go out there and you can make your name for yourself. You know, But right now, look at it. Look at the brands. How many rock star brands are there? You got four different Marley brands. You got Willie Nelson, Melissa Eshridge, you know, Revolution, Tommy Chong. I could go down the list. You know, there's there's 30 or 40 brands of, of stuff. And now every, you know, uh, major actor is coming into a brand. And Oprah Winfrey is coming in. 
I mean, they all want a piece of it. So you're competing against that. Willie Nelson, you know, so a lot of these small brands are competing against that, you know? So. Yeah. I, with like that being said but, though, I mean, the brand kind of aspect of it is, it can, in my opinion, it could be almost counterproductive. You know what I mean? It's too commercialized. It just, I don't see quality coming from somebody that just smacked their name on something. It just seems like another, you know, way to support that person, not necessarily a way to find quality. I'm sure along the way there'll be some good ones that come out of there. I'll have to have that, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, I just don't see quality being synonymous with, you know, branding like that. You know what? You're right. Um, the Marley's came out and thought they could put their name on it. And a couple other brands came out and didn't really have fire to begin with. And they realized they'll come see a Willie Nelson brand or a Marley brand the first time. But if it's not really good smoke, they're not going to go back the second time, whether it's Willie Nelson or not. So those guys have to find great product. And so they are. They're coming up here and going to the very best farmers and buying their products and putting their name on it. They're not growing any of that. And uh, that's why I said a lot of these farmers up here will be growing for other brands and have a niche. I mean, it's not, it's not all bad at all. I mean, it's just the end of one era and it's the transformation for another. Now, the other side of that is uh, consumers are going to find the prices go way down. I mean, you're going to really see with this collapse of prices and the overabundance of stuff, consumers are going to find really, really good deals. Out here in California, we had 10,000 dispensaries. After legalization, we got down like under 600 at one point. And I think we're under 1,500 right now. So there's kind of a monopoly on the dispensaries that are still making a lot of money because they control their markets. When we get back up to like 10,000 stores, then you're going to see like liquor or any other thing, you're going to see those competitive prices come in and uh, the farmer won't get any less because they're not getting anything now. It's really the dispensaries making the money, but then they don't get any taxes, so they got it tough. But you're going to see consumers get some really good deals in the next few years from, from cannabis. Right now, because of all the taxes and regulations, it's pretty expensive, but that's going to change. As it comes in and more and more product gets made, you're going to see uh, consumers get really good, good value. And so that's a good thing. And the other thing with legalization is that, I mean, I have a conservative... Uh, brother-in-law who was captain of Watsonville PD, I'm not conservative, I mean, he's, he's just, he's a, he was a good cop, but uh, he wasn't into cannabis and now he's had serious health issues. And because it's legal, he's been able to use cannabis for his pain relief from his serious illnesses. And uh, my nephew, uh, my nephew called me up and he said, oh, I, I brought, I, I brought our, our uncle some, some cannabis. And I said, really? He said, he wanted some cannabis. So we gave it to him. And my sister, I guess he'd blacked out on some pharmaceuticals and had to have problems. His, his police department had to help him out. She finally said, forget this pharmaceuticals, try this cannabis. And so they brought him some CBD and some THC and he did a little of the, the, like a two to one or something. And he called up my nephew and said, Chad, I'm going to need a lot of that stuff. This is the best sleep I've had in like 20 years. And now he's teaching people like his father, how to use cannabis. And all of a sudden this conservative, not conservative, but I mean, mainstream family is using cannabis because it's legal. And my uncle, who is the oldest reigning Catholic priest in the Bay Area, he just passed away, but he's 90 years old, priest for Catholic priest for 50 years. And my, my uncles who are other uncles who are cops, 
wouldn't let me give cannabis to him for the longest time. It got legal. So they said, okay, bring him the CBD for his Parkinson's. And it did so well. I said, you know what? If we could give Bill a cartridge and let him take a couple hits off some THC, watch what would happen. So they let me do it. And all of a sudden we have videos of this Roman Catholic priest dancing around the room with a vape cartridge in his mouth. And because of legalization, you're seeing things like that, which are really cool. All of a sudden you got cops and priests and people that would have never touched cannabis that are, that are taking it in. And so what are we going to do? We're going to change society because instead of like an alcohol driven, pharmaceutical drug driven opiates and crank society, we're going to have everybody getting high on cannabis. And you know, as well as I do, when that happens, you're going to have less domestic violence, less problems, less robberies, you know, less, you know, just less problems. You're going to have a more harmonious society. So overall, it's a great thing that's happening. I love those stories, by the way. I absolutely love them stories. And I will never, ever, never once when somebody is in my life and has been on the opposite side of the fence like that and has came back around, because I've had a few of those stories myself. I have never once, never once, or nor will I be on the I told you so side of that. I will do. Once I hear that, I just nourish with more and more information. But never once insinuate like I, that I told you so kind of, you know what I mean? It's so nice to see the eyes opened and, you know, see the bright-eyed, bushy tails of the, the effects and, you know, watching the discovery for themselves. To, you know, it's it's always such a nice thing to watch the, the people that have kind of shunned it for so long, you know, open their eyes and see maybe I was wrong. Now maybe I should tell a friend. That's the best part about it. Maybe I was wrong, and maybe I should tell a friend. It's that's the best word of mouth right there. Oh yeah, I tell you what, I fought these guys up here for years, decades, and uh, there's a small town south here called Willits, and uh, we decided to go in there and break that town down and try to get them to approve cannabis. And the mayor, old redneck dude, said, "Over my dead body." Uh, will cannabis be legal in this town? And his partner, who'd been fighting us on the city council for 30 years, we went in there and did about six presentations over the course of six months. And we showed them what their town could be because it was an old logging town that was dying. And at the end of that six-month period, they actually outvoted the mayor, this redneck mayor, and uh, said, no, you know what, we're going to trust this guy. And this guy that had been fighting me for like 25 years came up and shook my hand and said, look, I'm trusting you with my town, do us right. And I said, look, we're just like you. Take away the cannabis, I, I'm like you. I want my kids to be safe. I want them to go to school and have a good education. I want us to all be law abiding citizens. There's no difference in us, we're just like you. And now they've let that in there. The interesting thing is this old redneck that, that fought us for all those years is now growing cannabis in one of his manufacturing sites. And I met people like, don't you think that's like sick? You want to go in there and just give the guy, and I'm like, just what you said, I'm like, no, you know what? If I see Pepsi Cola coming out and I see the alcohol people coming out and I see these old rednecks jumping into cannabis, it's like, look, you know what? It, it doesn't matter. All that matters is we change and we evolve and it's about forgiveness and compassion. We're not going to make it with grudging and going out in retaliation and going after people. I looked at that and thought, these guys that fought me for all these years and now they're my competitors trying to grow more than me. And it's like, oh, well, 
you know, it's, it's, that's the way it is. So uh, to see that it's really, uh, you know, and it's happening everywhere. You know, we see it all over. So it's it cool. It's going to be, it's going to be pretty awesome. And like you said, you know, it isn't nothing about, you know, other people doing it. It's like that silent vindication. You know what I mean? You know that you were in the right the whole time. That's, that's good enough in my book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, you know, even they, in my they, opinion, uh, they got school. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was okay. just going to say, you know, in, in, in my life, in my opinion, I've seen that, you know, I've grown up with the stereotype of people who use cannabis will never be this or that. And, you know, here we come, you know, 25 years later and it's a whole different ball game, you know. I, that's some of them same people that they all said that uh, cannabis would destroy lives and whatnot. I've seen alcohol and pills just wreck them and their families, and you know, it's it here. You know, here, all the people that I've seen that stayed to the cannabis side are you know healthy, doing well, and uh, it's it's nice to see. It's nice to be vindicated after all these years that we weren't down the wrong path. That's yeah, and you know what? Most of those people, I look at these cops and like even I got a number of cops in my family and they came up after my Uncle Bill. They watched my Uncle Bill dancing with this vape cartridge and being happy. And they're like, Timmy, we missed something. What was it that we missed? And I said, you guys were just sold a bill of goods. You guys were indoctrinated into looking at us as evil people, as the, the evil weed going back a hundred years. You know, ooh, weed, if you're weed, you're only going to be a black person or a Mexican, Hispanic, you know, you're going to be one of those people, you know, you're going to be tainted. And it's like, what, you know what, because, you know, because a lot of the black people were jazz musicians and they liked Bud, you know, who gives a crap? They demonized us into this thing. You know what? We're all the same. There, there's wonderful people. They tried to make it into this, just like they try to blame it on everything. You know, look, uh, people of color are wonderful people. We're all good people. They demonized them. They demonized us. And they tried to turn it into this thing where it was us against them. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's like, look, yeah, first guy that got me high was an Hispanic kid. And I'm looking at, you know, uh, the Afro-American members in my family. They were just ahead of us. They knew that Bud was good. <laughs> they were like, yeah, Bud is good, man. We're going to get these white people smoking some Bud. And they're going to become happier people. <laughs> and they did. And uh, they turned us on and we took off with it. And so we owe them all a debt of gratitude. You know, and uh, people come from all over the world coming in from Afghanistan and Thailand and everywhere else down in South America. Those people all knew it was up. They had to turn on white America and get us going so we could grow up. And uh, but, you know, the trouble with it is, is that they demonized all those people and they tortured them all and they beat them up. And then they turned around, and started beating us up. And but they were taught to do that. And so really, I don't have anything like I've had several close calls with the feds. I mean, these guys in Mendocino know me by name. In fact, I had, uh, when I got my permission to get my, my dispensary, my guy went down to talk to the sheriff, Tom Almond, I got him elected. And he said, you know, we have to check you out with the DEA in common. Well, I've been hunted by the feds my whole life. And they know me really well. And he goes, you know, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that we're going to let you have the license for your dispensary. The bad news is you didn't really tell me who you were. Your friends at the feds say they're still going to get you. 
And because uh, I, I really got away about four or five times from the feds. I'm, I'm writing books about it now. And I don't even begrudge all those feds that tortured me all my life because they were sold a bill of goods too. They were told that we were evil people and they should wipe us out and they were doing their jobs. And, uh, you know, they didn't know any better. So I really look at it like it's time for all of us to just forgive and let go, get some compassion, realize we're all good. Everybody's okay. And the more cannabis we get out there and the more we break it across the world, it's just going to become a better world. So, you know, so it's going to happen in your place and your state. It's going to happen here. And that's what's going on everywhere. Look what's happening. You can't, you can't stop it now. It's blowing up so huge. You got Oklahoma. Look, Oklahoma is a pretty darn redneck conservative state and they're growing more cannabis than anybody who would have ever thought you got the cowboy cup in Oklahoma and they're out there blowing that place up. Well, you know what? One thing about farmers is, is whether it's California, Oklahoma, if you make it legal, those farm boys know how to grow it and they're going to do it. You know, they're going to do it right and good for them. You know? Yeah, I can't wait to see with that unlimited plant count, some of the great cannabis that will come back. You know, I'm hoping that, you know, with opportunities like that, we'll, we could possibly find some of these great phenos that we lost with some of these guys popping unlimited seeds over there. There's definitely going to be some great phenol hunts going on in Oklahoma and some of these states that are coming on and opening the doors all cowboy style like Oklahoma. There's definitely going to be some great things ahead, for sure. But, uh, yeah, you know what? Well, I'm kind of curious. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I talk too much, man. You jump in anywhere you want. Oh no! So you all know we want to hear you. You know, I actually the, I heard the tease of the book there, and I hopefully that comes to fruition because uh, I'm I'm definitely going to grab that book when it comes out. By the way. I was just going to kind of take you down the road of the Emerald Cup. Uh, when when did that come to uh, I you know when did you start thinking about putting that together? And right before you get going on that, I want to tell you, I've been to some cups, and I've been talked to people that's been around the world and been to cups, and everybody tells me you have to get your ass to California to attend at least one Emerald Cup before you say you've been to anything because that's where it's at and uh that's no joke every time i meet somebody that's been out that way they've came to michigan come to some of our cups they go this is fun but this this isn't shit you need to get out to california to an emerald cup and i heard that as 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 of late as yesterday i was talking to a friend and he was telling me you have to make it out to California to an Emerald Cup one of these years. You just, you have to. It's, it's the thing. So thank you for putting this together. But when did, it, when did it come about? When did you start thinking about it? And how rough was that, uh, that first year? I mean, talk about stress. That had to be nail-biter right to the, day, the second you closed the doors. <laughs> well, you know... Uh... I grew up uh, love, loving going to the county fairs. I love going to see the, uh, you know, the animals and the fruits and vegetables and the smells. And just every, every fall, you know, look, I'm an older guy. So we didn't have internet and we don't have all this stuff that everybody has now. You know, so the things we look forward to back then were county fairs. 
was really the big time of year for most families throughout America, you know, going to the fall county fairs. And uh, we got to that point where we're just talking, that's what we should be able to do for the, for the Animal Cup. We should be able to have people come and have a friendly competition and a gathering of the tribe for the fall harvest. And it seems like, okay, why can't we? Now, this is before we even got Tom Allman elected, so it was still really illegal. And people were like, well, you can't because you're going to go to prison. <laughs> we were like, no, we can do this. We were so naive. We thought, no, we can pull this off. We'll just disguise it as a birthday party. And we'll just call it the Emerald Cup. It'll be a birthday party for two friends of mine, uh, Lisa Austin and Desmond, uh, two local people. And um, so Lisa and I got together with some friends, and we basically produced that first Emerald Cup at my place at Area 101. And uh, looking back, it really is amazing that we didn't get arrested. Most people thought we would. Uh, we didn't advertise. We didn't put it out to the public. It was all word of mouth. So it was underground. But the cops hear everything. So we thought, okay, we're going to get it for sure. Uh, most people showed up in mass. Uh, the first and third place winners didn't show up. Um, we only had a couple dozen entries. A couple hundred people there at my place at Area 101. And uh, it was pretty stripped down. We, we didn't, at that point, we had no vendors. We only had one contest, just the flowers contest. And uh, it was a, a really incredible thing to be able to pull off when looking back. Uh, I, I really, it's a, it's a miracle we didn't get in trouble, but um, we did. And um, we made some prizes that they were the beautiful ceramic mugs that I still got. And I thought, oh, when they, when they told me they were making these ceramic mugs, I thought they're going to look like a coffee mug. But I'll show you sometime what they look like. They came and they were these beautiful handcrafted ceramic mugs. And the winner was a friend of mine's father. He'd give him a purple kush seed. He'd never grown any pot in his life. He's 86 years old. And he grew that purple kush. And God willing, he beat all the, all the cannabis farmers. He's, here's this old guy from Willis that never grown pot in his life. But he grew a purple kush and he beat them all. But the great thing was, he said, you know, tell Timmy that I'm too, I'm going to be dead soon. I might as well not keep that cup. He should keep it. And so we still have the first place winning cup at my place at Area 101 all these years later. And uh, it was really a, a wonderful, wonderful moment. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a beautiful event. It was just thrown together and we just did it. You know, a couple hundred people showed up. It wasn't a big deal. Um, it was really the next year that it really took off. We did a poster and we put in an all night party uh, it became known at midnight, everybody went psychedelic and we partied on psychedelics until the morning. And then we had a survivor's breakfast. Anybody that was still up in there got a free breakfast. We cooked a beautiful breakfast for everybody. It became an all night party. And we brought in the second year, they snuck a illegal hash contest on me. My friends wanted to do a hash contest and I wouldn't let them do it. So they did it anyway in the corner. And I came in, I said, what the fuck are you guys doing? He said, we're doing it. We're doing a hash contest anyway. And I'm like, do you realize the pot's one thing. I'll go to I'll go to prison for what you guys are doing. And they went ahead and they did it anyway. And then the next year we actually turned it into official competition. And Ringo came and tried to sell seeds, and we wouldn't let him sell seeds because that was trouble. Uh, no, we had no vendors at that time. But the next year I let Ringo come back and sell seeds too. Uh, so if you look from that first year to the second year, all of a sudden we had like all this food being made and you know, hash contests going on and seeds being sold. And it just really started taking off. I mean, from the first to second, the third year, it just blew up. Uh, and all of a sudden, the third and fourth year, we had hundreds of people. They were coming from everywhere. 
and uh, it became a pretty big competition pretty quick. It was really cool. And then we started adding contests on. We added the hash, and then we added the CBD, and then we started adding on one thing after another. And uh, it just it just blew up. It was amazing to watch it happen. You know, and everyone we had, we had kind of a thousand people. I had people all over the road. The second year, there were so many cars on. We were right on the highway where Area 101 is. And we couldn't park them all. They started backing up the freeway. And uh, this cop showed up and he comes into my, my front driveway and I'm standing out there and cars are driving by and you can smell the pot going by out of these cars. And he's just watching the scene going, I could be arrested. Every car that's leaving this place. And just then my friend was on the stage announcing the winners. And he's like, yeah, number six, this Bubba Kush. And he's like, and I don't know what is going on inside that building. He goes, I just want this to stop now. He goes, get this place cleaned up. And he left, but he didn't bust us. He, well, we're way up in the middle of nowhere. He didn't know what to do. And uh, he left, and I was like, oh, my God, that was amazing. And so we actually got away with it that year, too, when the cops came. And they came back the next year, and uh, I'd had an amazing experience. I had 20 pounds in my car. I was coming back from this dirt road. It was, it was snowy. And my car hit this turn and gently basically rolled off the road and rolled over and was kind of on the side up against these bushes. And I had to hide the weed. The CHP pulls up in his nice uniform. And he's like, you know, I think we can roll that car up and get it back on the road. And I said, really, you'll get down in the mud with me and do this. And he got down there in the mud and helped me roll that, that car up. And then he came back because I was still there. I had to go get the weed. And he said, well, why are you still here? And I said, oh, my, my, my girlfriend's coming. I thought I wanted to wait till she came here. And he's like, okay, that made sense. So he didn't try to get me for the weed I had. Uh, but then that year at the cup, I had gone to town and said, look, you guys came last year and you wouldn't give me a permit and you brought the cops out. And now you guys won't give me a permit, but you're threatening me. And it's like, you guys are going to get in trouble if something happens on these roads. It's going to be your fault. And so we had too many cars on the highway. CHP showed up again and it was that guy. And he, he comes out of the car and he, he, you know, puts a light on me. He goes, remember me? I was the guy that helped you. He goes, we don't want any problems with you. We just want the cars off the highway. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, yeah. We don't want to mess with you guys. Now we've always talked about it. My place is a spiritual sanctuary and event center and I'm a registered uh, minister. And so I think they really looked at it with the freedom of religion and that that was a ministry. I mean, when you come to Area 101, you come around the corner and there's a billboard with a uh, the UFO landing in the forest. And it's all a big colored billboard. And you come around and there's a marble Christ right there, life size. And then there's a giant Ganesh statue in the corner with stained glass Virgin of Guadalupe uh, windows. And so it's all murals with spiritual murals. So Area 101 looks like a pretty unique place to begin with. And... Uh, so we always felt like the cops were kind of afraid because they've never come in and busted any party we've done there. We've done two electronic parties that are all night every year for the last 20 years, and they've never come in. Uh, I think they're just kind of like, they don't know what to do with this, so they just leave us alone. Sounds like an amazing place for sure. It sounds like one heck of an amazing place. I do have to get out there and check it out one of these years, that's for sure. So... Uh, is has has there been any years uh, that has that really stuck out, you know, versus any of the others? Has there any been any one that has just set itself apart? Well, they all 
you know, they've got special parts to all of them. The first year, because it was so magical, because we were doing something that was so illegal. It was like we all knew we were getting away with something that was just really hard to believe that we were doing. That was an amazing year. Um, you know, the year that we moved, um, before we moved out of Area 101, uh, the 9.3 program, that program that I told you about that you could grow 99 plants legally, it had done so well that we went from 12 people to 100 people in that program. We were actually were funding the police department with our money. We put almost a million dollars in. And I told everybody, either they're going to have to let this go. This is before Colorado was legal or Washington. Nothing was legal. And I said, they're going to have to like stop this or every county in the state's going to start doing this because we're funding all their police departments. And excuse me, the feds came in and busted that program. And when they busted the main guy, Matt Cohen, I was the number two guy. They were flying my farm with, with drones. And uh, my guys were going, take the crop out. And let's run for it. I've been meditating since I'm a, I'm a kid. I've been meditating for 48 years. I'm very psychic. And so I meditated, pulled my cards, prayed, and was told that they're not going to bust me. So I told my people, as these drones flying us, just be cool. We're going to sit here for the next three days and cut this crop out. And so we did. But then they came in, and the feds told the sheriff's department, if there's one more permit, if there's one more license, if there's one more interaction with, with cannabis people, we're going to arrest the sheriff, the supervisors, the DA. That's when everybody in Mendocino got to see who the hell the feds were. They were like, Tom Allman, the sheriff, came out and said, we've been giving you photographs of big cartel grows. And you're coming and busting my legal grows here. And he goes, yeah, and if you do another one, we'll take you to jail too, Tom. So people told me, you better stand down and not do the Emerald Cup that year. And I was going to cancel it because they were threatening everybody. But I just decided that, you know what? Fuck these guys. I don't care. We're going to do the Emerald Cup anyway. Excuse my language. But it was like, we're going to do the Emerald Cup anyway. And that was the first year that all the lawyers and all the activists and all the people from the Bay Area came up to stand with us. I had five lawyers at that Emerald Cup. I mean, the leading lawyers in the Bay Area, Tony, Sarah, and all of them. So if the, if the cops showed up, we were going to have massive uh, activism and law uh, lawyers there to protect us. And it was a very bonding experience because it was kind of like, okay, bring it on. And so that was a really, uh, that was a special year for the cup because of what we'd done. I think the first year we moved to Santa Rosa and Sonoma County was amazing because we were putting on a show for a thousand people. And then all of a sudden we put on a show for 12,000 people. And my girlfriend at the time and I, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we could put on a thousand person show at Area 101, but to go into Sonoma County and put a show on for 12,000, we had no idea about security, ins and outs, setting up vendors, how to do these things. I mean, we're running around. I was running around in front of the place trying to park people like at noon. People were like, dude, you're not even dressed. I said, I don't have to be able to go to the hotel and change. I've been here since six in the morning trying to, trying to deal with this craziness. And we, we basically put that thing on by the seat of our pants, not knowing what we were doing there. And so it's kind of really a, an amazing thing to go in there, not even knowing how to do a real show at that size and put on a show for 12,000 people uh, that first year in Sonoma. And half the people in the triangle were really after us because they were like, you, you abandoned the Emerald Triangle by going to, to Sonoma County. And uh, so they didn't show up. Well, when they realized how much business all the people that went there did and how all of a sudden, instead of us just doing our little mountain show with our community, all of a sudden we were interfacing with the consumers and all the patients 
and how much business took off, every one of those people came down the next year. The next year we had a standing line for trying to get in for the vendors and stuff because they all made so much money and it blew up after that. It really took off. That was a special year, that one. Uh, I think the first year of legalization was a big show because um, we'd gone around the corner with legalization. A lot of people didn't want to see it, but to see it happen and realize we were completely legal was, and all of a sudden, all these people that wouldn't want to come to the show, like my uncles and cousins and what, everybody came to the show. It jumped up to 30,000 people. And that became like, okay, now we're like a real event. We're big. You know, that was a big one. Um, and then, of course, uh, when Willie Nelson came in and agreed to take the Lifetime Achievement, we started doing Lifetime Achievement. And Willie said he'd come in and do the Lifetime Achievement Award if we'd be willing to change it to the Willie Nelson Award. And, uh, you know, I love Willie as a, a longtime hero. I mean, I'm more of a rock and roll guy than I am a country western guy. But I really revere Willie for who he is and being an outlaw and being on the road and fighting for cannabis tooth and nail. And for him to come in there and bless us and be able to change that award to the Willie Nelson Award forever uh, was a very humbling, touching moment to be on that stage with Willie seeing that happen. That was that was pretty darn cool, too. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of really you know, just amazing moments in there. I can only imagine. You know, I can't imagine. I can't even imagine being responsible for that kind of amount of people. I mean, that's. Have you ever woke up and just pinched yourself? I mean, at some of them events and being like, "Holy cow! Is this really even happening?" That I've got all, that I've I've done all this. You know, all this stuff has come about. It popped. It actually happened. It actually happened. You know what I mean? It's got to be a crazy dream. Every year, I'll tell you what, every year when I get to that site and I watch those people streaming in and I see the joy on their faces, because like you said, the thing about the Emerald Cup, I used to go, uh, I used to go to the Goodwill and buy a hundred couches. So the biggest thing was at my place at Area 101, it was so down home and it was so organic. It was like you were coming into my house. And so everybody felt like, how are you going to transfer that to the Sonoma County Fairgrounds and make that feel the same? So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go buy 100 couches. And I'm going to put them all over the place. And we're going to go get all this furniture. And we're going to go put everything all over. And we're going to make everybody feel like it's a big house. And I did exactly that. We had couches all over the place. We were getting all these tables and lights and stuff. We were putting all these decorations up everywhere, all these natural things. And people were like, they'd come in there like, dude, this feels like, like we're like coming into like a really like an organic space. And so everything's organic. The food was organic. All the decorations were organic. People could feel how much, how much we put into making that show. Right. I never made any money on the cup. It was about a labor of love for people. Uh, it was about doing something magical for people. And so people could feel that reverence. I mean, I don't want to disparage any other show or any other event, but when people come to the Emerald cup, they can see that it's like, when you're putting a personal party on for all your bros and your family and you go to every bit of expense or whatever to make it special, that's what we did every year at the Cup. How can we make this special? You know, how can we make it so people really feel it? I mean, a couple of years ago, as we got really big, um, the handicapped people were having a hard time getting around the event because it's the fairground. So it's a lot of cement with little, you know, jagged edges and whatnot. And we go into the sheep barns and it's muddy and whatnot. And uh, so we went out and spent over $220,000 on flooring 
to cover all the areas. And it was like a spongy, beautiful flooring. I was like, we're going to spend how much on this flooring? I want to see this shit, right? It's like, how could you spend that much on flooring? And But when it came in and we saw that, you could walk into the big buildings and you could be like on a like, it was like a pad, like a three inch pad. So you could stand on that all day and not be worn out like you're standing on cement. And the handicapped people could travel on it really easy. And we had people coming up to me and saying, you know what? I'm, I'm Obviously I'm handicapped and I've never been to any event in my life where it's like, it made me feel like I could go everywhere and I was part of the whole thing. And, uh, you know, it was, we had like 220 different handicapped people come through that we were able to let them get complete access to that show. And we had special handicapped people that helped each one of those people get around. And um, it was things like that, that like people were just like, dude, you're like, you go, it doesn't matter. It's like, how can you make this so everybody feels like they're cool? And I'll tell you what, people used to come from, they still do, come from back east or all over the country. They come up and they'd say, you know, we weren't sure if we'd be welcome. Like we were kind of outsiders. Like we weren't part of the triangle. We weren't like the family. But, you know, there's not one person that ever didn't make us feel like we weren't cool, didn't hand us a joint or give us flowers or just be cool with us. And I'm really proud of our community because cannabis people stick together. You know, we, it's been us against law enforcement, us against the world, us against everything. And so the cannabis tribe is really uh, non, non-judgmental. We're very embracive. And, uh, you know, you see that at the cup. Everybody's just like, cool, come in. I don't care whether you're from Ohio. We don't care whether you, it doesn't matter to us. Nobody cares. And so you come in and you're just like, welcome. So that's cool. I love it. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. You call it the tribe. It is definitely a community, but it is, the cannabis community is very open for sure. And uh, I've seen that this last year, how, how people can come together and open their heart to one another and be very passionate and it, it is man i have made more friends honestly through the cannabis community than i've met anywhere else in my whole life and better friends here in the cannabis community than i've taken on in a lot of other places that's for sure for sure amazing people in the cannabis community that's for sure i think it, it's just something that i maybe it the canvas is just something that binds us all together, you know, sets us apart, but together. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense, it sets us apart, but yet together. Uh, canvas has, has that ability, for sure. I told people, you know, when we went down to Sonoma, they said, you know what, you moved out of the Emerald Triangle. And I said, no, we just enlarged the Emerald Triangle to include Sonoma. And then as we went statewide with the competition, I said, no, we've just enlarged the Emerald Triangle to take over all of California. And now I tell people, look, we're just going to take the Emerald Triangle and make it all the country. And it's like, it's one tribe. And it's just like, we're all the same, you know? And uh, we've always, I've always said, look, people are like, how could, we did all these, uh, these you know, classes, these educational classes, teaching people. We're like, how are you teaching people the tricks of the trade to everybody all over the world? We should keep that for the Emerald Triangle people. And I'm like, no, no. We should help the people across the country to not make the mistakes we did, to not use pesticides, to clean up their farms, to have the reverence, to grow the right material, to do the right things, to treat their people right, and uh, and give them the education that we learned. And uh, I'm really proud of the fact that everybody's embraced that. And now you see that going across the country with 
the genetics and all the different brands and whether it's edibles or tinctures or whatever else, everybody, you can get the education of anything you want now. And uh, it's great because then people don't have to spend all the years learning like we did. You know? We made a lot of mistakes. Um, we don't have time. At this point in the world, we don't have time. We need to get everybody up to speed as quickly as possible, growing the finest flowers and making the best products in the world wherever you are. You know, I noted there, you've said a few things that I've found very true and I've seen to be steady lines in the cannabis community. And that was like meditation, uh, cannabis, and spirituality and community. I, it's funny that uh, you mentioned all of those. Uh, and I want to know your thoughts on how cannabis can relate to spirituality. But it's one of those things, as I've done this the last year, it's I've almost come across this... Uh, this idea that cannabis has reemerged at this in particular moment to kind of set us straight, to be honest with you. It's, it's weird that, you know, it has been deemed essential in this trying times and COVID. And I'm not trying to go down that avenue at all, but uh, it, it's, it's very weird because it seems like uh, as I've learned about this and learned about the people that are involved in it, that marijuana cannabis I should say marijuana is a terrible term. It should never be used. No, <laughs> no it's not. No, I don't think it is. You know, marijuana, that's what they called it, you know, before. And, you know, this demonization of the word marijuana, it's like, oh, my God. You know, to me, it's like, it's okay. Weed, pot, but I don't care what people call it myself. It's can't, it took me a long time to get used to cannabis. I still like marijuana. You know, I, I grew up with it, and it was like, to me, it was a cultural term, but I know it's slang, so it's okay. I know it's just like it's it's been it it was named that in a bad time, so I guess that's why I try to stay away from it and go back to the cannabis. But what I found out is, you know, the more and more I think cannabis has emerged at this time to set us back on the the right course spiritually. To be honest with you, you know, it's the more and more the people that I've noted that have grown this have made that kind of transition to, you know, they were rec smokers to medical users to growers. And it seems like once you start growing it, it kind of sucks you in to a spiritual level. You know, it deals with, you know, a lot of the medical benefits I've seen from cannabis as of late has been from people that are growing the plant and they find, just that time of spending time in the garden to be very spiritual, you know, freeing, you know, that's where the anxiety melts away is when they're in the garden there. And further over, as they go down that journey and growing it, and you get that newfound respect for cannabis, it's the organics there. That's one word I left off there. They want to take it to the organics level. And then it's like, once we turn down that organic level, it's like, that's where the, almost the hippy dippy part of it comes in. We realize, you know, what's going on in the soil and what's how it, you know, everything's relating back to us. And moreover, I've seen people going, you know, I've got to start doing things right. Not just, you know, organics in my, my garden, but, you know, I want to start being more responsible in the way I live my life and the footprint around me as well. And, I, it's all about cannabis. Cannabis has been the, the mainstay through all that. And it, to throw that on, you know, one more aspect of that is I've seen it enrich a lot of lives as far as just overall knowledge. 
as people go through and want to grow this plant, it sends them down these other rabbit holes of organics and IPM, you know, all walks of lights that I've seen and talked to. They tell me across the board, I never thought I'd be, you know, diving down organics rabbit holes or spending time, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, you know, wanting to learn about pests and IPM. And so it's enriched lives in so many ways. But how do you feel, in your opinion, because I've heard you talk about uh, meditation and, you know, the spiritual side of you, do you think cannabis relates directly to that, that side of things, you know, the spiritual aspect of it? Has it fed in for you? Yeah, I think that um, the reason why they went after it so hard was because it is a very spiritually oriented uh, plant and it opens you up to your own interaction with your higher self. And, you know, think about it, everybody does. You smoke cannabis and all of a sudden you wander off in your own mind and you're having visions and creative thoughts and you're inspired and you get into art and music, you know, you know that's what, who was doing it a hundred years ago was all those old jazz musicians and all those people, you know, and it's, because it really inspires and uplifts you into creativity. Um, I've been studying conspiracy theory since uh, the early 1970s. Um, they, the, they, being the New World Order, whoever you want to call them, did not want us to thrive. They did not want us to be a thriving society. So when you look at the hippie generation of the 60s, what were people doing? They were doing a lot of psychedelics. They were doing a lot of cannabis. They were doing a lot of peace and love. They were becoming a very vibrant, nonviolent, thriving group. And the powers that be were like, no, we don't want that. We're going to wipe that shit out right now. We're going to take that away, like I said, with the mid-80s. We're going to replace it with crank and cocaine and pharmaceuticals and opium. And we're going to get that shit out of here because we're going to screw these people up. And on top of that, we're going to put bad food into their bodies. We're going to give them chemtrails. We're going to give them bad vaccines. We're going to give them all these pharmaceuticals, all this bad shit to basically beat them up and ruin their minds. And that's what they did. They really suppressed a whole generation with that. And the great thing about it is you can't keep cannabis down and you can't keep cannabis warriors down. So, excuse me, we fought through that and fought through that. But the reason why they didn't want it was because they didn't want us to thrive. And it's the same thing with psychedelics. Cannabis is a gateway herb, but it's not a gateway herb to drugs. It's a gateway herb to psychedelics. And what's happening right now, the same thing with cannabis and psychedelics. They, or same thing with psychedelics as cannabis. They tried to keep psychedelics down where they were putting all these acid makers and all these people growing mushrooms in prison for 20 or 30 years because they didn't want people to have their minds opened up. Now what's happening is they couldn't keep it down. I, I, I compare it to like a, a big bush. They kept pruning that bush back, trying to kill it off. And all it did was make the root stronger. It just got stronger and stronger. And then it blew up. You couldn't keep cannabis down and you can't keep psychedelics. And now look what's happening with psychedelics. Mushrooms are becoming legal across California and across Canada and across the world faster than anything. And they're realizing it's the best thing in the world for depression, for anxiety, for psychological trauma. And they tried to repress that because they didn't want people to be okay. They wanted to be on pharmaceutical drugs and not touching their spirituality. And so I've been meditating since I'm 16 years old doing TM. I'm really more of a monk than I am uh, even a cannabis person. I'm, I'm a reincarnated monk. And um, so what I came here to do in my part of it is that 
we're going to be introduced to our ET family in the next two or three years. That's going to come into fruition. They've been preparing us for the last 20 or 30 years. I spent a lot of money doing a, a, an ET uh, program for television back in the 80s. Uh, and I was told to stand down by John Lear, whose father built the Lear Jets, who was a CIA pilot who knew all about cannabis. And then he got out, not knew all about UFOs, and he got out of the military and went into MUFON and the UFO organizations because he knew this was happening. And he told me not to do that program 30 years ago because they'd kill me and to just let it unfold because they were preparing us for it. And so we're going to be prepared, uh, and we have been being prepared, to be introduced to our ET family it's going to happen within three years. That's why you see all the stuff on television about the new sightings that just happened off Mexico. They just had the sighting off Hawaii. They're letting the Navy come out and talk about it. That Israeli general just came out. If you saw the program, the Israeli general just came out and said that we have bases on Mars and that they're, we're interacting with UFOs all over. And he, he, they're, they're letting him say that to prepare us. So it's all being told and brought out worldwide and for us to be able to be prepared to meet our ET family, we have to vibrate at a higher vibration, a higher spiritual vibration, which is what cannabis and psychedelics and meditation and good food and the lack of drama and no violence and peace do. Because you can imagine evolved ETs, they don't want to be around low thinking Neanderthal people that are just beating each other up and fighting and stuff. And so, yeah, I, I have very strong feelings about that. And um, I look at it like they suppressed it. They couldn't do it. We're going to look back in 20 years and realize that it was all those cannabis warriors that fought for it when they tried to demonize it and keep it down. It really broke it so that we could lead to where we are now and lead it into the psychedelic uh, era that we're going into right now. I mean, I have a partner friend uh, who's putting up $25 million in, in Canada to fund the psychedelic psilocybin research project to bring uh, mushrooms across the world okay and the same thing is happening in california they're now opening up large-scale uh, mushroom production that's going to happen in oakland and it's going to just be like cannabis it's going to blow up across the country and if you haven't really seen that with cannabis anybody that sees it with mushrooms it gets rid of all depression it's so inspiring you get so high, you get so giggly and la full of laughter. You know, my my uh, dad's oldest friend came to me about four years ago, and he said, "You know, this this is a 76 year old man doesn't get high." And he said, "My neighbor is suicidal," and he read that that mushrooms could help him and save him. The guy had never gotten high in his life; he was a straight guy, and he said he was so depressed that he heard that mushrooms might save his life. He said, "Would you give me some?" And I gave him some mushrooms, and he came back and he said, "You know, Tim." The guy said it's changed his whole life. He asked if he could have some more. So I gave him some more. And he came back a couple weeks later. John goes, can I get like a quarter pound? And I said, what's going on? He goes, well, it worked so well for him. I gave it to my daughter because she was depressed. And now she's doing so good. She wants it. So does my other friend. And, and so I said, John, you're becoming a mushroom dealer? And he goes, I guess I am. And uh, I just, you know, watched that happen all over the country. I hear, I hear what's going on in the streets because I'm, I'm on the streets. And so I used to say I should put a thing out saying what the prices were going to be, what the best strains were going to be, because I hear it ahead of time. So about two or three months ago, I had in the course of three weeks, six different people come to me to buy mushrooms and say, can you get me 100 pounds at a time? And I was like, 
you mean like 10? And they said, no, 100. And I said, you want 100 pounds at a time? And when the sixth person came and told me that, I was like, oh my God, the draw for mushrooms across California right now is so huge. It's just insatiable. I mean, what people are looking for. So I'm telling you with what I'm hearing and what people are coming from for mushrooms, uh, you're gonna see people looking for thousand pound lots of mushrooms in the next six months because it's just gonna be the biggest thing since cannabis and it already is. And uh, so that's all leading us to a more spiritual way of life. There's a thing called Clubhouse, a new app. And Clubhouse has got all these programs on it. And I've listened to, uh, we're talking about, I announced with Del Potter, we're gonna do the first mushroom cup uh, next year. We're gonna do a, a psilocybin mushroom competition. And uh, so we had all these people on this program last night. And I was listening to some of these people that were so brilliant with what they're doing with healing people and helping people heal themselves with, with psilocybin and how they're doing it and the setting and what they're doing and how they're setting it up. I mean, maps and stuff. It blew my mind how many people are going into psychedelic research and, and really driving that whole industry. Uh, what you're going to see in the next five years, people may not be aware of it, but you're going to see an explosion of psychedelics across this country that's going to be like nothing you ever saw. Pretty soon, my, my cop uncles and my, you know, my cop brother-in-law, they're going to be asking for psilocybin, not just cannabis. So kind of long-winded, but I, I think what you're going to see is you're, you're going to see us be introduced to our ET friends. I've had interactions with our ET friends since I was born. I've had about 20 interactions. That's why I've got a UFO landing in the forest at Area 101. Um, and uh, we're going to be introduced to the Intergalactic Council and we're going to be flying around in spaceships in five years. I don't doubt that, to be honest with you. I, I don't doubt that you've seen something, especially being open-minded like that. I believe, just like you said, you have to be on a higher frequency to be opened up like that. And I, I'm right there with you. I'm glad to hear that, you know, because I, I believe a lot of the same things you just said. So it, it's nice to hear somebody else, you know, beating the, the same drum there but it, it, you do you we're on a lower frequency right now and and that's where everything's at to be honest with you the the, the records the akashic record that we you know and we can't access that with the at the rate we're vibrating right now uh we've come so far and we're actually being and we're getting further off i actually think with all the uh the cell towers that we're being uh, bombarded with and a lot of the frequency that are, you know, that's one thing I've come across lately, the whole earthy type thing. And it only makes sense that we're absorbing so much, so much of these uh, signals from the air, the frequency from the air, from cell phones, from the Wi-Fi and whatnot. It's kind of throwing off our personal frequency. We're having trouble keeping our, our frequency there. Uh, so grounding helps uh, us kind of plank that out and get back to a clean state. But mushrooms and psilocybin are helping us re get back to where we need to be, opening up them doors where we can be ready for other things, uh, be able to uh, accept 
some of the knowledge that's out there. A lot of knowledge is out there that, you know, we wonder how we can do some of the things that we're able to do. You know, sometimes you try something and it's just effortless. It's because, you know, you may have been tapped into or been a part of, you know, just that knowing at one point. There's, there is, and I, once you've reached an uh, open mind, that frequency that you can reach through psychedelics, there is so much knowledge and things to be had there. And I don't think, like you said, that uh, if there's somebody out there, uh, alien presence, we're not ready for them. They're not, you know, we can't even get along with ourselves yet. So it's going to take some kind of uh, ushering in through psychedelics where we know and find ourselves again to make that happen. And uh, cannabis and psilocybin are definitely here to help us uh, reach that point. More, I like you said, I, mushrooms are screaming through them. I hear people taking mushrooms. I take them on a regular basis. And most people I know here in Michigan are drinking teas and eating chocolates and opening up their minds. And like you said, I've seen people, two doses, help themselves through anxiety and a lot of other life problems as well. I can't, that's one door I am hoping that is opened up again real soon. I'm one of the people too. I've been diving deep into the realms of uh, psilocybin and uh, mycology as well to see is where it can take us. I'm one of the people that uh, I'm very interested, very interested. In fact, uh, there's a gentleman, Tanase, uh, I've had on the show. Uh, Tanase, who uh, makes up uh, these kits, Sacred Three Mushroom Kits, that uh, is helping people, you know, open them doors up and start producing their own medicine as well. So uh, I'm right there with you. It's it's something that needs to be done. Everybody should experiment at least one time. For sure. But it, it, it may well, be the key you know to um, open us up to that uh, visit there that you're talking about. They would we're not ready right now, that's for sure. We're not ready. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, we think that we've really become evolved. But when you look at indigenous people that didn't have internet, and didn't have phones, and didn't have TVs and cars, they were, they were earth people. They are, they are earth people. And they're so much closer in touch with their higher selves and the information from their psychics, their guides, and their, their angels. We all have angels and guides, and we all get information going back and forth. But you need to clear the channel. That's what meditation does. It clears the channel so you have a more of a direct contact to your angels and guides and your higher self. Well, indigenous people throughout time have had much more of that because they're not bombarded, like you said, with 5G, the Internet, their cell phones, all this bump, 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 bump. And so that's what we need to get back to is really more in touch with our higher selves and our spiritual bodies, because we have everything right inside of us. We're God. And we've kind of lost that connection. And uh, that's going to happen. That's what cannabis is doing. And that's what psychedelics are doing. And that's what we're, we're raising our vibration back up naturally so that we can be prepared for this interaction with our ETs because they're out there. We've been working with ETs. Uh, very closely for the last thousands of years. There are there are creators. They created us. 
I, I can I can believe that. You know, we're definitely on that precipice. That's for sure. Uh, I, I'm all I'm all I'm all optimistic about it. To be honest with you, I hope that I'm ready when it's when it's time. To be honest with you, <clears throat> for sure. Moreover, if I happen to make it out there for an Emerald oh, no, Cup, could I come meditate with you? <laughs> you can, can I find it out to the ranch and meditate the with you? Oh, yeah. You can come meditate with me, Indeed. and you can come and be my guest at the Emerald Cup, and I'll make you a VIP. You come and hang with us the whole time. That would be epic. That would be epic. I, I cannot turn down that. <laughs> I cannot turn down that offer. Uh, I will try to make that happen for sure. Because uh, it's been one of the experiences. Like I said, everybody that I've ever dealt with that has been to the Emerald Cup, tells me that that's an experience that uh, I have to, I just have to endure one time in my life. Everybody says that you have to go out there and experience it at least one time in your life. I've had friends that, I had a friend that's in chat right now. He's like, man, I will, I will, I'll hook you up. I will take you and everything. You just got to want to go. <laughs> it's an amazing trip, man. You, I don't know why you're, you're not going, but it sounds like it's it's time. It's time. I have to uh, check this out myself. It's you know it's a spiritual aspect. Of it. it sounds like that draws me in the most. That uh, that tribe feeling. I've been to a lot of cups, but they don't. They don't. None of them have uh, matched the description in what you described the Emerald Cup. And that sounds like an amazing experience for sure. You know what? It's about reverence in life. When you go to like, um, you go to a mosque or you go to holy shrines in India or Buddhist temples or whatnot, there's a reverence there that people put into that. And, and there's a reverence in anything you do in your life if you do it right, whether it's sweeping the floor, uh, how you treat your animals, you know, your gardens, whatever it is. And I think with the Emerald Cup, everything we do, we tell our team, it's about how do we make it a very special experience for every person that shows up. How do you smile and have every volunteer and every person working there happy to be there so they're transferring it to people and it becomes infectious where it's just a very positive, uplifted vibe. And what we've done in the last couple of years is we've reintroduced, people wanted me to reintroduce the all night psychedelic party. So we've taken over the Flamingo, our hotel the last couple of years and we've had up to 1500 people there uh, doing an all-night psychedelic party. Uh, two years ago, we came in and I dropped uh, a pound of mushrooms, three bottles of acid, and a couple ounces of MDMA. I had my guys just pass it out to the whole crowd. It was so lit. We had electronic music going on. The lady in the flamingo, I walked up to her, this old lady, you know, she was in this thing about three in the morning. People are running through the hallways. They're just, woo! And I walked up her and said, are you okay? And she said, the Flamingo has never seen anything like this, but I'm good. This is fine. I like this. And people are just going off the whole night. We just like set that place on fire. And uh, so we went ahead and did it again last year. And now we brought back the tradition of like really making it completely psychedelic for the after hours party uh, on Sunday night, going all night with people. And uh, we can't do the survivor's breakfast yet, but we'll get that one in there too. And uh so now people really look forward to the after hours party. 
as much as anything. I, I, I'm sold. I'm sold. <laughs> I'm sold. I'm figuring out how I can get out there tomorrow. <laughs> I'm setting a plan together tomorrow. That's for sure. It sounds amazing. That's for sure. Well, that's what we want, thank you. What I, we want to do is we want to take that for, to LA and really bring it. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying thank you for making uh, pot, the event like this oh, no. uh, possible. I cut you off. This, 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 uh, it's going slow with the sound. So. <laughs> yeah, I can hear the delay there. Well, yeah, we want to take it to fun. L.A. and really light up all of L.A. and make it a big psychedelic party down there, too. That's what we want to do, the Mushroom Cup. Is to have uh, you know five thousand. Now, now, is this coming through? Is this going to record? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've done well as far as uh, covering the. It'll be fine. You there? For sure. This will be fine. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Well, yeah, I want to do. I want to. I want to do that mushroom cup, and get five thousand people all high at the same time on uh, mushrooms, and uh, see how that goes in a in a, in a public setting. That would be. Uh, has anything ever? Nothing like that's ever been done. That would have to be an amazing. That, that, that would be an amazing first right there. I'd like to be a part of that as well. That would be spectacular. But I can't imagine all the peace and love feeling coming out of that. That would Something like that would almost set some a vibration so strong. I mean, it would be interesting to see what would come out of that. You know what I mean? Is there something about when you get a large amount of people together, you know, it creates that feeling that vibe but you put everybody on an open mindset like that uh i can't imagine what would come out of that the ideas that would come forth and uh just the overall good time that would be amazing well for a while we were putting on uh private parties up at my place we'd have about 175 people hand-picked that would come for each event We'd all do a gram and a half to two grams of mushrooms at the same time in a mushroom smoothie in a circle. And then we would we would play music all night and we would have like Bob Raylove who produced some of the dead shows. And uh, we'd have Chris Decker who produced Earth Dance. Some really cool musicians come in. And we'd have food brought out and we would dance and play all night together. And we'd have another pound of mushroom smoothies put away so people could keep dosing all night. And we would just basically hang out all night together with a couple hundred people. And it was really magical transformational experiences. You know, the people really wanted to come to those, those events. The American one wanted to know if you've ever attended any of the old rainbow gatherings. You know what? I've, I've never attended a rainbow gathering and I've revered them. I have friends that have gone forever and, uh, I don't know why that never really happened because you're talking about the same thing. I mean, 
beautiful communal gatherings without money. I mean, the Rainbow Tribe, you know, that's really, that's the basis of what we're talking about. They've been doing that for the last, you know, decades. So my hat's off to them. And that's a great comment by your, your listener that, uh, you know, I have lots of Rainbow family that have been doing that. I think for me, I was always an outlaw growing so hardcore and I could never get the time to get away. I could just never make enough time to really go. But for whatever reason, maybe that's an excuse or whatever, because I really should have gone. I've heard so many stories about how sensational those gatherings were. Uh, I really wish I could have gone. And then Burning Man, of course. Burning Man's like, likewise. Burning Man's just as incredible. You know, what we were doing up where I am, every year there's a show called Earth Dance, and then there's Reggae on the River. So most of us were going to those events each year, and those were hardcore psychedelic parties too. Good times right there. I've never been to something like that on that scale. In fact, I I just found out like three years ago that they have there's an event similar like that in Michigan, the Electric Forest. It uh, I've yeah. actually found you know. And it's not far from me. And I found that out like three years ago. And then I'm like, how have I been missing this all these damn years? But that's another one I hope to uh, to check out this year. Right? I can't believe that something that great's been going on around me that long. And I've, I've missed out. I mean, I, I, I for real, I was like beside myself. I'm like, wait a minute. How long has this been going on? And I've been missing out on it for so long. They're like, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, uh, I gotta go. Yeah, I've heard about Electric Forest. We had a show called Earth Dance up here. It's about ten to twelve thousand people up here, a few miles from here, that goes on for three, four days, and very, very psychedelic, uh, very much like a rainbow gathering in that in that note. And now they've got a new show called Northern Nights, which is an electronic show north of here. My friends put on for about five, six thousand people. And that's a completely elect, uh, electronic psychedelic party for four days there too. Uh, I've gone up to that um, and that's just an amazing event. You know, I mean, they do have these incredible psychedelic gatherings that are coming on more and more. It used to be just the uh, rainbow gathering, but now you've got so many of them coming out, these electronic festivals. Electronics and psychedelics seem to go together. They just naturally fit. That's what the kids like. They like the electronics, stay all night. I'm a transfer. So I can't I've been doing trance parties at my place. I've been doing trance parties at my place for the last 20 years. We have Go and Gill, who's an infamous DJ. We do between uh, 300 and 600 people twice a year in my house. In my house, but Area 101. I have a big stage in the back with a fire pit. And we bring in, like I said, 500 people. And we play trance for two days straight. And uh, we just do psychedelics all the way through. So that's probably why I never made it to the Rainbow Tribe because I was always doing my own psychedelic parties and then going to Earth Dance and then going to Reggae on the River. And between that and taking care of my farms, I could never get out. Uh, it sounds like a good good thing there. I mean, it doesn't sound like a bad, bad thing you got going there. It sounds like amazing. Why would you leave? Why would you leave? <laughs> why would you leave, to be honest with you? I don't think I would. Because because the rainbow because the rainbow gatherings are some of the most special magical uh, family tribal uh, gatherings in the world and anybody that's been to them will tell you that they're legendary so I really wish that I'd made one of them and I really hope to in the future. <laughs> 
Yeah, it sounds like an amazing time. I, you know, I've, I've utilized psychedelics for a while now. I actually, it was about a year and a half ago, closer to two years ago now, that uh, I had an accidental hero dose, I guess, if you will, of uh, some mushrooms there, some philosopher's stones. And uh, it changed the way I I viewed everything, to be honest with you. It and that, it was a weird experience because I was actually, I I had them, they were coming somewhat fresh, so they were wet when I was getting them. And then I got like a dry badge and like a dummy, I didn't wet, dry weight, you know what I'm saying? I kind of did my wet dose in a dry, dry form and it kind of pushed me over the edge there a little bit. What I seen that night kind of, it was very trying but man what i seen that night set me up for what was to come in the next year and a half and it walked me through those troubling times and kind of showed me how to deal with it all that night i mean i dealt with whatever all the things that were coming to me in the next year and a half all that night and when i it all came to fruition i was uh stable-minded through the whole thing it didn't sway me when it should have swayed or could have swayed any other person when i was going through that time people asked me how are you feeling how the hell are you doing and i was like i'm doing fine i i kind of i'd seen this coming and i made peace with it long ago and it was weird even after that uh that that dose that night I started seeing like angel numbers after that. And again, I, I haven't figured out why they're appearing or what, but they've definitely have got me looking and realize every time I see them, I kind of check myself and what I'm thinking. They might not be pointing me in the right direction or, you know, showing me obvious signs. But when I see them, I definitely check what I'm doing and what I'm thinking to kind of make sure it's on the right path and it's, you know, focused in the right direction. That's for sure. But ever since that dose, man, I see one, 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 two, 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 three, 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 like numbers like that, like all the time, all the time. And they, it was, it became so prevalent. I could, it was like coincidental at first, but then it became so obvious. It was like, okay, now I have to start looking into these numbers and, you know, trying to decode whatever's being thrown at me. You know what I mean? And uh, so I've been even deeper down the psilocybin rabbit hole since that day, uh, kind of thinking that, you know, they're walking me down the right path. And they have, you know, ever since I've been opened my mind up, uh, things have been falling into place and I haven't even questioned it. It's like one of those things you just don't even question. You just continue. <laughs> So it's been a, it's been a pretty well, there are wild guides. year. Well, our mushrooms are our guides. Uh, they're very, very obviously intelligent uh, beings. They were brought here on purpose to teach us. And uh, having done a couple of those hero doses myself, where it's like, whoa, I mean, I find myself hugging trees and, and close to merging, uh, having like a communal like session with a tree where I just like becoming one. And uh, I haven't done that that type of a dose in a couple, three, you know, probably four or five years, but it's about time for me to go back and do one of those, you know, those 
five, six, seven gram doses where you just like, you really get up there. And, um, you know, I have dimes come to me. That's one of my things, you know, as you, as you open up, as you, like you said, you have that trip, whether it's one numbers or whether it's certain things, you'll see that synchronicity. And, you know, it's amazing that we have this world and all of our angels and guides spend all their time setting up these coincidences with us and these synchronistic things. It's kind of like when you think of somebody and they call you or, you know, you're thinking of something and it appears or, I mean, these things that are very magically coincidental karmic destiny pieces. And the clearer you get, the more that stuff comes in. I mean, eventually you're Sai Baba and you're creating a piece of fruit out of thin air to give to a kid like Jesus, you know? I mean, that's what happens as you get that clear, you get instant manifestation. And uh, for me, it's dimes. I've got thousands of dimes. Dimes will come to me. And uh, in the middle of nowhere, I'll, I'll look down on a dime. will be in the middle of the street or, you know, out in the woods or something. And I'll just, I'll just be like, okay, I know I'm on the right path. I'm being guided. I'm being shown these things. And I'm, I'm being made aware to really pay attention. And uh, so that's why I love to meditate every day. I, uh, I do medicine cards, Native American medicine cards. I do tarot. Um, you know, I do my own form of, you know, spiritual practice. And then I, I pray to, uh, to God and to my angels and to my higher self in Christ and uh, all the saints, you know, all the holy beings. And uh, they're there. I mean, that communication network is there. And uh, it's just how your perception, how, you know, the ETs are so fast. It's like fourth and fifth dimensional energy. So we're just not aware because they're so fast. It's like our angels and our spirit guides. They're right here with us. We just can't see them because we don't have the perception. If we could, we'd realize that each one of us has seven to 12, 14 spirit guides around us at most times. Uh, and the higher you get, the more your perception you know, opens up so you can feel and see that. So it's, it's really, uh, I love that stuff. That's why I love meditation. Uh, you know, uh, the American one wants me to ask another question there. He says it's a little off topic, but I don't really think so. He wants to know if you've ever experienced sleep paralysis. And I don't think that's far off topic because I've actually have taken some uh, psilocybin and kind of taken a nap. Some of my best experience with the psilocybin has actually been sleeping. <laughs> if you can believe that, uh, just taking a nice dose and fallen out and some of the journeys i've taken sleeping have been incredible some of the things that's unlocked that way has been pretty incredible so with that being said have you ever experienced like either on psilocybin or without uh sleep paralysis been made to like not move and see something yeah i have uh i have i had an experience where i uh was dreaming and um I was looking at uh, three planets and somebody was taking my face and showing me and showing, look at the three planets. And I was in India traveling and uh, I noticed that wolves were with me nearby, which is usually a sign of ETs. And as I was looking at these three planets, I was dropped back into my body and I was woken up like shocked, like I came in, but I couldn't move. And I just laid there thinking that I had just been in this place where I was looking at these three planets with somebody that was grabbing my face saying, don't forget the three planets. And uh, it was a really one of the highest spiritual dreaming events I've ever had. Um, and in meditation, 
my highest form of meditation is when I, um, I'm out of my body and I'm aware of my body and I can look down and my head will be like almost like drooling because I'm so deep in meditation and I'm aware that I'm in two places at once. And when I come back in my body, it's paralyzed where I'm not in my body able to move. So all I can do is be consciousness. So I'm just sitting in my body with my eyes being able to look at awareness and feel that until my body actually is able to move uh, for a minute or two. And those times are so high because it, it really, you realize you weren't in your body and you were. So a lot of that sleep paralysis is that you were taken out of your body, maybe to see your ET friends or go to someplace else. And when you come back in, you're not all the way in your body yet. So you're paralyzed for that, that moment. And uh, I mean, some of it becomes a, a different thing where you're just asleep or your body's not able to move. But most of the time it's because you've been taken out and you're, you're coming back in and you're not all the way in your body yet. I love that stuff. And I love going to sleep on mushrooms. My favorite thing, if I can go to sleep on mushrooms, it's like what I should do one of these days is eat the mushrooms and then immediately go to sleep, you know, because it's harder to go to sleep once you're high. But when you're high, going to sleep on mushrooms is really cool. I love that stuff. The most technicolor dreams it's, and inspiring. That's how I'm usually able to do it is just kind of fucking. I, I take them when I know like I'm like already kind of tired and then I take them and eat which helps send me to a lull and then fall out. The days I've had some weird, I've had, it's one of the best experience, but it's weird. You know, you have that just euphoric type feeling while you're sleeping and dreaming, or you're more awake than you are dreaming for sure. But then you have that wake up moment there and you have that, you can't quite tell if you're still sleeping or if you're still kind of, in that dream state there and it takes like a funny few minutes to kind of get your bearings back on but some of the best experience i have had is definitely sleeping on us uh, suicidal for sure memorable and that's another thing too is you know any other times i'm with cannabis i don't remember a whole lot of dreams but when i have that that mushroom sleep that mushroom dream man it's it's very vivid it's very vivid when I come, when I wake up, I can remember almost everything that happened in that state. It's pretty awesome. I actually like to learn on mushrooms too. I actually like to, uh, we'll take some and then dive into like a good audio book while I'm working in the garden. It seems to like, I can really resonate with what I'm taking in at that point. It seems to like really sink in at that point. So there's a, it's definitely a great tool. Yeah, microdosing. People should be microdosing. You know, most people in America, if they were just microdosing, they would find that their ability to absorb information, to uh, be inspired and learn, would be activated so greatly. Uh, you know, we should have a regular course in microdosing for most Americans. Um, you know, I read a book called Game Changer, which is Dave Asprey. That's the guy that did Bulletproof Radio and uh, Bulletproof uh, Coffee and whatnot. And he had all these leading 500, Fortune 500 people, these leading, most successful people in the world. And he took all their information and he turned it into a book called Game Changer. And it turns out that almost every one of those people is eating organic food. They're meditating. 
and they're doing psychedelics, microdosing. And if you look, and it was amazing to me to realize that all these Fortune 500 CEO, you know, superstar people, were, they know what's up. They're all eating organic food, they're smoking pot, they're meditating, and they're doing microdosing and uh, meditation. So it's like, uh, we need everybody in this country to be taught that because we really want to have a thriving super culture. You know, so that's what we need. We need to have people really embracing that. And uh, if we, once we do that, then we'll get rid of all wars and stuff. People on mushrooms and smoking cannabis aren't about war. You know, nobody's thinking, let's go out and do some wars when you're on cannabis or, or taking things from people or being abusive and stuff. You don't do mushrooms and go abuse your old lady or your, you know, your husband or whatever. It's like, you don't do it, you know? <laughs> no, because you can empathize. You find yourself empathizing with person on the other side and you know feeling what they're going through that's another thing i've learned from uh psilocybin is not to be so quick to uh make a judgment or uh, even any kind of form any kind of opinion on what people are going through you know i've had you know throughout this thing i've had people not show up tell me they'll be there or whatever and you know i've never i i never get upset about it because what i've learned through the last few years is you just never know you know what i mean it's so quick to you know assume you know whatever and copy your own attitude about it but you never know what's going on the other side with the other person why they didn't show up or why they said what they did you know you have to really put yourself in their place you know and understand a little bit before you even think about passing judgment or you shouldn't even pass judgment you should just be willing to you know be there you know, you know, help, you know, ask questions. Uh, I see you're having a bad day. Is there something I can help you with? Is there a problem that you, you, you need to get off your chest? You know, it's, you know, I, I just can't, I just can't drag around hard feelings anymore. I really can't. Life's too short. Well, that's what you said. Empathy is what it is. When you have empathy for people, uh, that leads to compassion and, you know, that's the four agreements with Don, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz. You know, his book, The Four Agreements, you know, it's about you know, not assuming and having empathy and really learning how to, to deal with people and not, not taking it personally. Don't take things personally. You know? And all of us do because we have ego problems. We're all self-esteem challenged because we come from abusive families or from you know, peer groups that have told us we're not good enough and all the stuff that society has put down on us. Um, we're all really broken little kids that just need to have more love and attention. And once we do that with society, we can start healing it. And that's, that's part of what cannabis does. And that's what the mushrooms do. They help you get back into that. They're doing some stuff with uh, my friend, Del Potter's talking about, they're going to do a new thing with stem cells where they shoot you with stem cells and mushrooms at the same time. So it goes in and it rebuilds your brain and it reroutes all the psychology so that it heals everything instantaneously. You know, can you believe that? I was talking with this guy about, because stem cells are going to be the future. They demonize that, and that's a bunch of bullshit. What they're doing with stem cells is unbelievable, and uh, they, can, they can heal anything. And what he was saying, I was saying, gosh, Dell, what about mushrooms? And he goes, no, they've already figured out how to do that. They shoot the stem cells and the mushrooms into you at once. And it's going to do this massive psychological uh, rebirth into your brain. 
It's pretty amazing. I know a gentleman here in Michigan that's uh, working with like a, a RSO and a psilocybin type uh, tincture there in capsules for uh, helping with anxiety and stuff like that. When he said that, I was like, man, that sounds like a, a match made in heaven right there, the two of those together. But it, it sounds, you know, there it is. It's going to open up a lot of doors. It's going to help a lot of people. And I can't wait to see where the next few years are taking us with uh, the psilocybin. You know, cannabis is just busting the door open. But, uh, you know, the next phase is the mushrooms for sure. And helping us get through the door. Oh, yeah. Well, they're both working together. Look, they're both sacred plants. It's sacred plant medicine. The ayahuasca journeys, people are doing uh, the ayahuasca ceremonies. You know, they were like, you had to go to the jungles to do ayahuasca ceremonies to really be part of them. Now, in California, in Northern California, on any weekend, there's probably 25 to 50 shamanic sacred medicine ceremonies going on with ayahuasca. It's unbelievable how many people in Northern California and throughout California are going together and doing ayahuasca journeys. And uh, that's another piece that's just magical to see what's happening is people are really doing that in group form. And you have a group healing with that, with the ayahuasca ceremony. It's really, it's uh, having been to, to some of those, it's really, that's an incredible journey too. That's one thing I'd like to try too. I'd like to make it out to the desert and uh, experience some of those uh, ceremonies as well. Yeah, I'm, it just opens the door for traveling. I need to travel more and see some of these uh, majestic places and uh, be a part of some of these ceremonies for sure. It's uh, that's too short. That's too short. They got DMT. DMT. DMT cartridges are becoming a big thing in California. They're putting DMT into cartridges and they're selling them as carts where you can just go puff on the DMT right through a cartridge. Wow. I never even heard of that. That'd be pretty amazing. I, I, I would try that. <laughs> I would honestly try that to you. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. How do you California? Well, uh, <laughs> well, we are the cutting edge. I tell you what, we definitely we're the forerunners. No, on that note, you definitely seem to be. That's for sure. So, how, why does it have to be in both industries? Can't you guys give us a little break and only like run on one? <laughs> you guys got to be the leader in both. Come on, man. <laughs> Good times, good times. Uh, so I'm interested in, you know, for somebody that's been around and in the cannabis, you know, community for so long, how 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 do you feel? How how are things transpiring? Are we are are we on course, the right course? Uh, where do you see it going in the next few years? Well, I, I talk to people across the country and across the world. And cannabis is going to become a trillion dollar industry in 10 years. You know, in the next five, it's going to become a hundred billion. And then it's going to explode from that to a trillion. And uh, it's not about the money. It's about the impact socially and spiritually that it's going to do. 
And so you're going to watch everybody using some form of cannabis, uh, whether it's medicinally or adult use or whatever you want. And so the sky's the limit. And there's going to just be industry that's going to be ex exploding for people. So, uh, I, you know, I look at it as, look, I'm a person that's been studying this my whole life. In the next few years, you're going to see free energy brought in. You're going to see stem cells. The stuff I'm talking about with stem cells, stem cells right now, they demonized it because they didn't want us to thrive. Again, back to that. So they use it as religious persecution. You used to have to get stem cells through the bone marrow. Now they can get it through your fat cells and get abundant supply. It used to be $500,000. You can go to Mexico and get a full stem cell replacement for 25000 bucks, and it'll make you 20 years younger. It'll fix COPD. It'll fix brain damage. It'll fix all your arthritis. I mean, so every person in the world is going to be getting their own stem cell upgrades every few years, and you're probably not even going to age anymore. We're going to be given free energy so that nobody ever has to deal with energy issues anymore. We're going to all have access to cannabis and psychedelics to heal ourselves. We're going to change our society into a thriving society with organic food and organic living. And we could have done that back in the 60s, but once we killed John F. Kennedy, um, they took over the world and we were no longer a free society from my perspective. So we veered off, but that's all coming back now. And so for the next five years, cannabis is gonna to continue to explode. So are the psilocybin, so are the health modalities like stem cells and all the uh, natural healing. Um, you're gonna get the free energy we're going to be introduced to our ET tribe, and we're going to be traveling around the universe, visiting other planets and seeing how other people live. And so that's my biggest excitement that I look for in my passion project is that I know that within five years in my lifetime, I'll be traveling to other planets and visiting with our ET family. So that's where I'm going. I hope that all comes to fruition. To be honest with you, I really do. It's over. It's overdue. It's overdue. To be honest with you. And uh, you're right there about Kennedy. It did all. Did it? It did all change with Kennedy. That they actually took him out to keep him quiet, in my opinion, just to buy themselves a few more years. But at that time's past, man. There, that time of control is definitely over. People are waking up, you know, with the internet and the free flow of information, the the powers that be really have no nowhere to hide. <laughs> you know what I mean? Information's being flowed too fast. They have to, uh, they can't hold us back any longer, to be honest with you, in my opinion. So, uh you, you initially yeah, told me you, was, we could have about it. The Department of Defense built the internet. The military, when they built the internet, thought they would be able to kind of keep track of us and control us. Don't let the time delay get you. I'm sorry about that. No, it's not you. It's my internet. I live up here in the mountains. I hope that the uh, podcast goes through okay. I'm sorry about that. But, um, you know, I was saying that the Department of Defense built the internet and they built it so that they could track us and basically keep an eye on everything we do. But like you said, they didn't realize that it was going to give us access to talk to each other freely and so quickly and disperse information. 
And so basically what they thought they would use against us, we've now used against us them. And this information revolution is going to be the other thing they can never put back in the box. We're too connected now worldwide. That's what we're speaking on right now. I was just kind of checking in with you when I cut in there. I know when uh, we originally hooked up there in the beginning of this, you said I might, the time allotment would be right about an hour. We've kind of went twice that and then some. I was just making sure that we're still doing okay on time or if you wanted to gracefully bow bow out at the time. I I try to keep the guests happy because... Obviously, uh, I'm enjoying this immensely, and I would like you to come back, and I don't want you to feel <laughs> exhausted at the end of this and be like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that again. So I'm trying to keep keep you in the good graces. I don't feel exhausted at all. I will have to leave in a few minutes. I'm writing two books about all this. I'm finishing two books for my letter agent. And so I get up at four in the morning to write because it's the, the highest spiritual time for me to write and channel. And so I get up every day at four in the morning. So usually I go to bed early these days. I'm at, It's about 11 o'clock here. I go to bed about nine or 9.30 so I can get up at four. And before all my business takes place, I can write for three or four hours. Uh, I'm finishing two books right now that are going to go out and become a television show. I signed with a major... Uh, talent agency firm in LA, one of the biggest in uh, LA called Hertz, Lichtenstein and Young. Um, They only do partnerships and some of their partners are Will Smith, Glenn Stefani, Keith Richards, Celine Dion, uh, Black Eyed Peas. Uh, You know, they've got a huge roster. And so they're going to do a television show with me off the books that we're finishing right now. Uh, basically about what we're talking about the last 50 years in the cannabis business and all these wild stories. I've, uh, I've lived a pretty wild life. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I, I'm going to get the book. So when, right, when you said uh, a TV show or a movie and the books, I'd rather read the books, to be honest with you. When, 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 when might we be able to get a crack at this? Uh, the book the book deal will be done by March. We're going to try to get one of them published this year. They're talking about publishing both of them within one year, which is almost unheard of for an unpublished author. Uh, but they've looked at it. And it's interesting because uh, they got into the whole thing with me because of cannabis. Uh, actually, I'm a very good writer. I, I didn't realize it until these literary agents told me how, what a good writer I am. But, um, but also the subject of cannabis and spirituality and psychedelics and ETs and what the books are about. And so they said, Tim, you're talking about the four hottest subjects in the world right now, not just cannabis, but also psychedelics, ETs and spirituality. So, and healthy living and empathy and compassion and spirituality. So you're talking about everything people want to learn. And so uh, I'm very excited to get those books out and then uh, the TV show right behind it. Um, uh, pretty exciting, actually. So, with the books, uh, I have a, a couple of requests for you. I don't, I don't know. Like you probably like, who in the hell is this guy? I just met him, and he's already got like requests and shit. But uh, as far as the books go, you know, I love to own a hard copy of you know the books I love to read and stuff. 
I just there's something about having it and knowing that you're always going to, internet or not, be able to <laughs> to be able to enjoy it. But there, I also love my audio, my Audible. So is there any chance when these books come to fruition, is there going to be an Audible version? And if so, as an Audible listener, I very much appreciate it when the author uh, narrates it. So if it becomes to a thing to where it's going to be on Audible, could you please, please uh, do the narration on it? Because, man, it's so much more enjoyable to read when it's coming from the person that you can hear that it's just like this you mean you can hear the passion behind the stories and the words and it makes it so much uh more incredible to listen to and it's gonna sounds like it's gonna be some incredible uh reading slash listening anyway so it'd be amazing if we could hear it directly from the author the author himself so uh just putting that out there just by putting that out there when it comes available i mean it would be pretty amazing so just wanted to say <laughs> I'm, I'm, I will be doing the audio version. I will do it myself. Uh, we've talked about that. I do love books, but I also love audio too. Uh, and uh, it's going to end up being a, a four-part series. I'm going to finish the first two books and then do two more. Uh, my literary agent's been responsible for 15 best-selling authors, and she tells me that these are absolutely going to be best-selling books. She's already talked to the publishing houses. And they're going to bid on them, uh, so I'm I'm really excited. My my grandfather was a writer. My dad was an attorney and a writer, and that was on my bucket list was to always dream of being a published author. So to have that on the, you know, on the doorstep, and not just with like hoping I'd get it published, but with that literary agent out of New York who had you know 17 literary agents under her for 40 years, telling me that Tim, these are slam dunks. These are going to be bestsellers, and we're going to go out big with these. Um, and she's going to do a two book deal with an unpublished author, which is almost unheard of. So uh, I'm working day and night with a couple of editors right now to finish those books so we can get them done and sold uh, by the middle of March. So that's what I do. I basically, uh, I'm not getting high right now. I meditate and pray all day long. I get up at four in the morning and work and write. And, uh, and then I work until 10 o'clock every day. Um, and for me at 64, that's a pretty tough schedule, uh, seven days a week. So that's what I do every day. It's up to you. That's an amazing schedule. I hope that I, I still have the zest of life like that at 64, to be honest with you. <laughs> Got a few more years to go, but I hope I'm still, I'm that hungry and still knocking down them kind of hours then, to be honest with you as well. I can't wait. I honestly can't wait. They're absolutely right. They are bound to be bestsellers. And they are four great subjects uh, to be covered. Yeah. You definitely got me enlisted and want to hear more. That's for sure. I can't wait. can't wait. Well, you know what? The thing about it is, the thing about it is, is that um, they're, they're surrounded by very impactive, crazy, wild cannabis outlaw, somewhat violent stories. I mean, I got my teeth kicked in. I got hogtied in the bathtub. Uh, I thought they'd murdered my friend. They, they plotted my murder, taken me outside. I've been chased by the feds all over the state. You know, I put 6,000 plant and cornfield grows. I've been robbed by everybody and their brother. I've faced guns multiple times. So even though, uh, People look at me as kind of a mellow, kind of a 
guy with what I'm doing, I lived a really crazy upside down life all those decades. And so uh, it's going to be a pretty wild story that people are going to go on and um, they're going to be surprised when they read them, uh, you know, where it comes from. But I, I am very excited about it. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing that audio that you're talking about. And I am going to do it myself because there isn't anything the same as when an author does it. You, you bring your own passion into it. Thank you for that. Thank you for considering that for sure, because it will be that much better, at least on our end for sure. I know we, I know as an audible listener, I will greatly respect your choice and read it yourself. It is, it comes through so much better. It does. It just comes off so much better when the author reads. So, uh, with that being said, is, uh, Everything on for this year's Emerald Cup? Or are we going to be able to uh, to to get to that this year? Is it still in the works? We're, planning we're going phases? to do a digital show. We're locked down pretty tight here. We're going to do a digital show. We thought we'd go to L.A. and do the big show in L.A. this year. Um, we're going to have to wait to go to L.A. for 2022. Um, we're going to shoot part of it in L.A., part of it at Area 101. Um, because we have the contest, we're going to still be able to move on. A lot of the digital shows aren't that, aren't that great, but because of the contest uh, and people really wanting to win this, we've become a very uh, sought after award for these brands to be able to hang their hat on. So we've already got almost 400 entries right now. Um, we have another two weeks for the contest. We'll go through a month and a half of judging. And then the last week of March, we'll do a four day digital show and everything in life is, Every crisis is an opportunity. So the crisis that we can't do an in-person show is giving us the chance to do a digital set of shows and we'll be able to push it out across the country and across the world to a much larger audience. So we're working with some really fine folks to put that together and make a really, really cool, hip uh, digital show. Uh, we have over 400, over 40 contests, almost 200 awards. And so it's going to be a four-day event and we're going to really blow it up. So... Uh, we're working on that every day right now to make it something that's so exciting that uh, people look at it and go, okay, we set the bar for an in-person event. And now we're going to set the bar for a digital event. And we're just going to take that crisis and make it the best opportunity we could have ever asked for. So yeah, cups on. Oh yeah. So uh, how can we uh, be a part of that? I mean, how is there uh, links? I mean, how can we uh, get our, get in line for that uh you can go back and look at the emeraldcup.com and check out the contest where we're going you can look at us on instagram we're doing a lot of live instagrams and we're doing a lot of uh videos right now about the contest and what we're doing and how we're doing it and uh and then the information coming in the 24th to the 27th of march we'll be shooting that uh four 90 minute shows and uh, it's going to be a, a wonderful event. It's going to be free. We're not going to charge anybody, of course. And uh, we're going to just bring everybody in and bring some great, uh, great, you know, uh, community people in. And we're going to bring some talent in and uh, we're going to rock it. My daughter's my co-producer, Taylor Blake. She's going to come on and uh, it'll be good. Ooh, the American one's got a question, another one for us there. But man, I almost don't. I like the idea of that question. Uh, he says, please ask him if he has uh, plans in the works for a national Emerald Cup when it gets federally legal. 
I'd say I don't know if I like that question or not because I kind of am on the, the, the mark of like something, an event like yours that's been created and been in, in a, you know, a region for so long to kind of uplift that spirit and, you know, move it around like a circus. I don't know how, you know, could you duplicate that in another town, do you think? On a, on a you know, everyday basis? It seems like it would take a lot of the fire out of it, you know, having to do it, you know, once a month here and there, you know, it seems like it might take some of the life out of it. I almost would rather see it be a once a year event that do you you have to be a part of or you just fucking miss. <laughs> you know what I mean? That that makes it more epic, I think. I don't know. What what's your plan? <laughs> well I part I partnered with Red Light Management, Star Hill Presents. They're uh, Dave uh, they were the Corn Capshaw was the uh, guy that built Dave Matthews. They've got fish uh they've got luke bryant they do they own parts of outside lands bonnaroo south by southwest the intention was to make it like a Lollapalooza show and go around the country i I agree with you i think that the main event will be here in california but we might connect with other events like the cowboy cup and help them do their contests and then have regionals which come together for a final when it opens up across the country we definitely want to have uh, a best of show with everything that's grown in the whole country and bring it to LA and have a finals there, uh, just like the Academy Awards. And so I, I think that we'll end up having the big show in LA and, and it will become a very large event and we'll have entries from all over the country. Because once it goes legal and we can take entries from everywhere, why shouldn't we? Why should we just restrict it to California? If you want to bring an entry from Oregon, Mi- Michigan, wherever else, and so uh, I'm kind of torn. We never thought we could take it out of my little place at Area 101 and move it to Santa Rosa. And we did that. We never thought we could move it to LA and we're gonna do that. And so as long as you keep that reverence and as long as you bring that, that dedication to really doing everything you can for the audience and for the contestants, um, yeah, I think we can, but whether we do another show across the country, we actually talked to some people about doing a show with uh, some people in Michigan with you guys, uh, near the, where the electric, uh, Daisy was at. And we've talked to people about doing a couple other shows and we planted our flag in England to talk about doing a show in Europe. So we have talked about doing a cup in Europe and we have talked about doing some events across the country, but the main event will be in California for sure. Good question, though. Man, I love the idea about like regional winners, to be honest with you, coming to one main event. It's one thing that I don't, I've never really, I thought it's a little silly about other events like that, is they kind of go around and it's cup winner, cup winner, cup winner, cup winner, which is nice, but when you're handing them out like every month, does it, it doesn't seem to be, you know, as meaningful as it could be if you took them all and you know okay you won this region and that that's a nice coveted board but you still tame the chance to win the ultimate cup for the year i mean that that would be that'd be awesome right there that'd be a respectable title to hold i would think you know because it's weaned down to one my times was doing like all these cups and became like, what does it matter? I mean, 
there's 16 different cups you're doing and stuff. We're not going to do that. We would just do the or the Emerald Cup, but we'd probably take entries in from around the country. If you want to compete against the best of California, you can, and uh, we'll bring it in. And uh, you know, whether that's regional winners that then come to California, or whether you just come in here and do it, but I've got the best team in the world with Red Light and Star Hill Presents. I've got great partners. I've got a great uh, law firm agency in LA, what we're doing. My manager was the manager of Spearhead, Michael Fronti for 25 years. She's working with me. I mean, I've got like a world-class team now of people that really want to see this become done right. So um, we'll always make sure that it's done with integrity and with reverence and uh, with the contestants and the audience in mind. And we'll just we'll figure it out as we go along. But right now we're back here to the COVID year where we're just getting this digital show together and doing the best we can. And then going to LA and breaking into LA will be a huge event for us to go down there. So we're already making the connections and connecting all the family up to go down there. Uh, and so that'll, that'll be, you know, we'll, we'll turn that into a hundred thousand person show down in LA eventually. It'll be a big show. I can't wait. I can't wait. The next one that's open to the public, you can count on me being there for sure. And I will attend the digital version yeah. this year as well. You know what? You're welcome. You got a standing offer to come out, be my guest. Uh, you know what? I, I'd say as I, as I close this up with you, that I've been saying to people for the last 15, 20 years, it's been the people doing the education, You're, you know, people not getting paid for doing work like yourself are going out time after time and doing these shows and spending all that time putting this out here. You guys, uh, the journalists, the media, the hosts have gone out and really broken those doors down through inspiring people, through educating people, through the communication. And uh, my hat's off to you and all the people that do that work. Uh, there, there was a lady that uh, got fired from NPR because she put a broadcast about the Emerald Cup on years ago. And they told her not to. And she went ahead and did it anyway. And it became a huge show on NPR. And they fired her over it. And God bless her. She was like, you know what? This information needs to go out. People need to know about the Emerald Cup. And uh, I think of NPR, National Geographic, Rolling Stone, Penthouse, uh, Playboy Magazine. Not Penthouse, but Playboy. They've all done articles on us. They've all helped us. They've all helped the community. They've helped to break these, these barriers down. And look at what they've done and look at what you're doing. So my hat's off to you. That's why I said, come on this show. I listen to what you're doing. And I was really proud to be on this show. And I am proud to be on the show. And whatever I can do to help you, I will. And uh, you can come out and party with us. I'll get you a judge's pack. And you can see the very best of the flowers. And uh, you can decide for yourself what you think the top 10 is. That would be amazing. Not, but... Not necessary. I will tell you that I would take you up on it in a second, but this opportunity tonight has been, you know, amazing. To be honestly, I've had tons of respect for you over the years. I watched your watched your life, your career, you know, through the media, and uh, it's been an amazing story. And I was actually telling what my children today, as I was talking to them, I was like, man. I have got, you know, this guy's, in my opinion, he's huge. I am very nervous about this. I can't wait to, to be for this opportunity. So thank you very much for, you know, everything you've done through your lifetime and the cup and everything you're continuing to do. 
Uh, it's an amazing. You, I mean, you've talked about you know your, the stress and, of being through this whole journey, but man, you have to be going to bed at this point with very with a very gratified feeling that you've carved a hell of a niche uh, in your life and done some amazing things. You have to be going to bed at this point uh, very satisfied with your place in life. That's for sure. I would think so. I would think so. Thank you very much for taking time to hang out, man. It's been an amazing, amazing night. I mean, uh, this you've been on the list from like day one. <laughs> when I've thought about people I wanted to get on the show, I just thought I had to uh, build some build some credibility underneath me before I reached out to uh, for that invitation. And I, I honestly was beside myself when you said you'd come on. I, I mean, I was walking on here for the rest of the day. I, I didn't even want, I didn't even tell anybody for a couple of days because I didn't want to jinx it until it, it was set in stone, to be honest with you. I just kind of sat on it. I even hinted about it on some of the shows. I'm like, man, if this all comes to pass, this is going to be amazing. I'm, so I didn't even let on until it happened. So I appreciate everything you've done in the cannabis community. I appreciate the cup you put it forth for everybody to get together and have that spiritual experience. Even though I haven't made it out there yet, people have told me that it's the place that I need to be and check out and do once before I die. So I now I'm more than ever going to make that pilgrimage out there as soon as possible to uh, see for myself the greatness that has become the Unrum Cup. And uh, thank you. Uh, one last time, thank you again for hanging out and telling your story and uh, making this possible because it meant a lot to me and a lot of people in the community have enjoyed this. And uh, again, thank you, my friend. But before uh, I kind of, you know, let you let you say your goodbyes and uh whatnot i wanted again i kind of told you this in the beginning you're no different than any other guest that's come on this zoom number is always the same so if you ever happen to be up on board i know you said you go to bed at nine but the show does start some nights at early mondays are rabbit hole nights if you ever see a topic that uh you know picks your brain and you want to come on and talk with us or if you just see a panel that you want to make their day they can say i just was online and smoked with tim blake uh feel free to pop in no you don't need no invitation you don't have to give us a heads up they will see that name pop on and guaranteed you'll be passed right through no questions asked it'd be a great uh, great night and with that being said, one other thing I'd like to get from you, kind of corny, but uh, it's become, it's a mainstay of the show. And that's, uh, I'd like to get, if you will, uh, a, your sound value for this episode. Basically, and I was, I was a little leery about this until you let one slip, uh, if I was going to get the F-bomb out of you. But uh, basically, in my words, is. uh what I'm looking for is, hey, this is Eagle Gardens, and I'm on fucking talking shit with Eagle, episode 296. And you can put anything on that, and embellish on it, make it your own. But that's pretty much what I'm looking for, my friend. Can you give me that little sound bite? Sure. 
I'm ready. Hey, this is Tim Blake, and I'm on Eagle Gardens, episode 296, and I'm honored and proud to be here. It's been uh, an honor, and I look forward to coming back soon. Thank you yeah. so much, and I hope you do come back again, maybe after the book uh, release, after you've got that all. Yeah taken care of and it's set in stone you maybe you could give us a little teaser of what's in the book and uh let us know where we can find it that would be amazing uh again Say thank you I, very I, much I and uh sorry oh no go ahead Please it's, go it's ahead. the delay that's what it is uh, so this is the delay on I your was... part you come in slow comes in no I, i'm interrupting the interruption is because you probably got it real time but mine comes in slow but Look, you know what? I truly am honored to be here. You are a really quality individual. I can tell right now what a good man you are. And I would love to come back when the book drops and spend some time with you. We're going to do a book tour around the country, but I definitely make the time to come on this show and hang with you, catch up with the cup, see what's going on. And by that time, we'll be heading into 2022 and we'll talk about going to LA together. And you come down, break the show with me in LA. And uh, come down, be my guest, and we'll go party in L.A. That would be epic. That would be epic. Oh, man. It's on the bucket list. It's on the bucket list. I will have to make that happen. Thank you so much. I do have tons of respect for you, and I don't want to hold you up anymore because I know, uh, as you said, you're usually in bed at 9-ish, and we're probably pushing closer to 12 now, and I don't want to hold up, hold up that book at all, so... Thank you so much for well, you, you know, know going above and beyond what you said you'd dish out tonight. It has been amazing. Amazing, my friend. You know what? When when a conversation's good, the time goes by quick. And we chewed up, you know, uh, almost three hours uh, just hanging out and just going through it. So you're an easy person to converse with. You're a great host. I love what's going on in Michigan. Shout out to all the people doing the fine work over there in Michigan. I got a friend there. I may surprise you and pop in and see what you're doing here this summer coming in because I, I told some people I do a little tour and go out and see some things. So COVID opens up. I'll probably come see you in person. If not, we'll get you out to the cup. And uh, again, I love Michigan. I love the people out there and what you guys are doing. So congratulations and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you very much. And, uh, I hope you do look me up in here in Michigan. Because uh well, I guarantee you I will. When I get to Michigan, I guarantee you I'll, I'll surprise you. Come in, I'll say hi, and we'll burn one. I do like to get high and I don't like to go to bed that early all the time, just when I'm writing books. I gotta I gotta, you know, the highest time for me to write is four in the morning. Uh, you you seem to man that uh, knows your body and uh how to run things very well. So I wanna take Take your word that that's a creative part of the day for you. And now, like I said, I don't want to interrupt that uh, by any means because I have tons of respect for you. Thank you so much. Man, it's going to be hard for me to go to bed tonight. I can tell you that. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. I'm, I'm floating on air. I know it looks like I'm sitting, but I'm actually floating right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, it was an honor. Thank you. Thanks for the show. Take care. All right. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and sign off. You can sign yourself out. Mr. Tim Blake, what an epic, epic episode tonight. I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I have for sure. You guys know the routine. Uh, 
about time for the rabbit hole. I'm going to go ahead and wind this out, get myself something to drink, stretch for a minute, and then we'll come back and get the rabbit hole fired up. Uh, for those of you that don't want to venture through to the rabbit hole and get down into some of the craziness that happens there, that's fine. Thank you very much for hanging out tonight with this amazing guest, Tim Blake, founder of uh, Emerald Cup. And just all around amazing dude, as we found out tonight. But I will see you guys in a minute, if you're willing to hang out. Come hang out. That'd be for sure. Badass. Uh, if not, have an amazing night. Get some rest. And uh, you guys know the deal. Do something nice for somebody. Random acts of kindness do save lives. And we all need a little help now and again. And, of course, one positive thought can change your whole day. One positive attitude can change your whole life, to say the least. With that being said, I'll see you guys in a few minutes in the rabbit hole. Thank you so much. I am...